three years now I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive you. I can never have children. We can adopt some. But you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Welcome, 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 welcome to the podcast that does, I think, what it says on the tin. It's best film ever. My name is Ian. And I'm Liam. And Liam, we go see a lot of movies together, don't we, buddy? We do indeed. And we have these conversations about the films that we watch. Usually sit, sat down on the good days, sat down in the good old Majestic up in Kings Lynn. Yeah. I miss the, Maje- majestic. I miss the majestic. You? Yeah, I do. Like, how many movies would we have seen this summer? Like, good ones. You know what I mean? Like, Top Gun would have been out by now, I think, or, or yeah. close to coming out. Like, Memorial Day for the States is coming up, and that's like blockbuster movie season, and there'd be all these great films to go see. I was also looking forward towards um, Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yeah, that's been pushed back. I think it's in August still, but uh, okay. it's it's all really tentative. I mean, Black Widow's been pushed yeah. back until, what, November or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, we'll so, see. Yeah, we, we, we will see. But I'll tell you what we did see this week. We saw, again, Liam, our best week ever as far as downloads for the podcast go went. It's so good. It's so, it's good. so good. So We love watching it grow. We love watching it grow. So I think a big thank you to anybody who's downloaded this at any point. Thank you so much. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of bizarre to see every week it get a little bit more and a little bit stronger and these big, these big jumps and spikes and even some films are like, other oh, people are going to like this film. And it, it, it seems to be the case that, you know, people are at least, I don't know, listening to disagree with us, listening to agree with us. I don't know. But, uh, the premise for anybody, this might be your first time. You go, what is this on about? Basically, uh, about 17 months ago, I bought Liam a poster for Christmas about the 100 bucket list films that you have to watch before you die. And Liam and I made a decision we were going to watch them all together. And we got, in about a year and two months or three months, we got through eight. And so we thought, well, we need to watch more of these. And we also went, we, we really should have been documenting this the whole way through. It's a really interesting kind of journey. And from that idea, a podcast was more or less born. And We've tried to stay on the poster as much as possible. We've taken some steps off the poster. I don't even know if today's is on the poster, Liam, if I'm being honest. I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. But we have been joined. It used to be here at the the home studio of awesomeness. But thanks to um, the lockdown that most of the world is in and the uh, government orders to to stay safe, and through the wonder of Skype, we do this now a little bit more virtually. But we do have some perma guests with us. It'd be nice if they could uh, take their cue and introduce themselves now. Hi, I'm Ellie. Hello, I'm Georgia. Hey, it didn't do that draggy thing it usually does. That's a good sign. That's a brilliant sign. Although I know what it is. We got new Wi-Fi today. It's great. It sounds much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I'm very, like, like it's, very it, happy about like it. Like it's ridiculously good now that I'm thinking about it. Although it meant that my laptop was now lagging behind even more and wouldn't actually load the film because it was over overloaded i have to download it instead but never mind okay so today we are gathered here to um to, to look on the death <laughs> to more, more we are here to talk about some like it hot some like it hot. our first listener suggestion the boys yeah. yeah the boys at little bitch podcast uh got in contact with us marshall and dan and said 
Uh, they just did an episode on conspiracy theories and it covered Marilyn Monroe a bit. And they said, you guys should go ahead and look at Some Like It Hot. And I looked into it and went, it's really highly regarded, actually. We should go ahead and give this a watch. What are people's experience like either with Marilyn Monroe or like maybe like just classic films in general? Because it's not something that I'm going to say that I'm overly familiar with. Liam, how about you? You, you, you watch, watch a lot of old films? Um, I've watched a few old films, and I've only watched a few Marilyn's. I haven't seen them all. I've seen things like Some Like It Hot. I've seen um, Niagara, Fur Blondes, and a few others, which I can't really name off the top of my head. Had you seen The Seven Year um, Itch? No. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen that. But you had seen this one before? I have, yeah. Oh, okay, I hadn't, so interesting. But I've seen it, like, in my teens, so this is a good <coughs> 20 years ago. A good, a good five <laughs> years, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Ellie, how about you? Have you seen any classic films, big fan of classic films, or any Marilyn before? Um, not really, like, I've only seen kind of maybe a couple of sort of older films. Um, I've never seen any Marilyn Monroe stuff, so it's all quite a new thing to me. Uh, Georgia? Yeah, no, uh, similar to Ellie, I've not really watched anything like this. I mean, I've seen glimpses of things on the TV, but they've never hooked me enough to actually watch them properly. Um, And I think that's probably reminiscent of my feelings towards this film as well. But I'll leave those for later. Okay, that's what we call... uh... Maybe just it's not even like a hook. It's like here's here's what it is. Here's here's the Coles Notes version. Georgia maybe not a fan. Uh, <laughs> some like it. I, I have no basis of Marilyn. I'm, I actually kind of avoided classic films. I don't know if I'm a bit of a snob and go. Eh, it's all too. It's really basic. It's rudimentary. Like I, I have to teach Rear Window by by Alfred Hitchcock, and I like it. I do. But it's so slow paced compared to modern films. And I kind of go, I miss a more sophisticated version of storytelling. So I probably am a little yeah. bit going, okay, it, it, I'm sure it was good then, but you know, we're so much more sophisticated and savvy now. And so maybe with a little bit of skepticism, I kind of went, yeah, let's watch Some Like It Hot. I think I'm very much in the same boat there. It's, it seems very kind of simplified compared to modern day films. And it's kind of, it's not just the effects and kind of technology advances it's the actual kind of storylines and things as well though yeah so something like it hot uh 1959 film based on a 1935 french film fanfare of love which i'm guessing is the english translation i'm guessing they didn't come up with <laughs> le fanfare of love um le fanfare de moi, moi. Yeah. daughter doesn't speak french <laughs> But, Georgia, you might not speak French, but can you speak IMDb for us? What was the IMDb synopsis for this film? Uh, Not very long. It literally just says, After two male musicians witness a mob hit, they flee the state in an all-female band disguised as women, but further complications set in. Yeah, I'm watching Liam read it off the back of, or look at the back of the DVD (laughs) case right now. (laughs) That's not what's on mine. (laughs) Liam, here's my question for you, because as we read this and talk about this, I'm convinced I'd kind of seen a riff on Some Like It Hot before, and I am I would bet the farm that Georgia hasn't seen this film, and I would bet the farm likely that Ellie hasn't seen this film. You don't own a farm. I, if I had one, I would buy one and then bet it. Liam, on the other hand, you, you, you may have. Did you ever see the film Nuns on the Run? Yes. It's got a similar, yeah, it's got a similar vibe to it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, both two guys on the run, yeah. Yeah, and just, and just hiding in drag in a situation you wouldn't expect to see them in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much the like opposite version of Sister Act, isn't it? But instead of 
doing drag, she becomes a nun, which is the opposite of what she is. She kind of does it like morally. Like, what's the furthest thing from from like a lounge singer? I'll yeah, become yeah. a nun. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, in Nuns on the Run, you had both of those because they were seedy guys who end up going to a nunnery, but then they also end up in drag. And it was Eric Idle and yeah, Rob Robbie Coltrane, wasn't it? So that's good. But anyway, yeah. back to some like it hot. Um, it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, actually. It was nominated for Best Director, Billy Wilder. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, Black and White. And back then they had Black and White and Color Awards for Cinematography. Mm. Because of course you would. Because you can't, you can't show off color. So any Black and White film would have been a disadvantage. So as long as there were a large amount of films being made in both situations, you have to, I think, honor both separately. Absolutely, yeah, they're completely different mediums, aren't they? It wins the Oscar. I would think at that point there weren't enough color films, so it would have just been, everything would would, would have just been one one blanket. So like when like The Artist came out a couple years back, a couple years back, quite a few years back, I guess, I don't know, a handful, five years back, six years back. Um, that would have been, I mean, they didn't go black and white for the Oscars then because it was kind of a, an outlier, the fact that it was black and white. I think The Wizard of Oz is the same thing in reverse, if that makes sense. Um, it wins Best Costume Design, black and white. Because again, if you can't see color, how can you award costume on an even playing field? So what did, what, what did you think of the costumes, Liam? Um, I didn't think the <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that was a question of fit it was just a question of uh i have no idea how to phrase this but i guess showcasing Marilyn monroe maybe i'll put it like that yeah very much so and the film also yeah, maybe, yeah. I found the front part of the dress as a distraction, personally. Well, let's get to that point. We'll talk about the dress, specifically, because I, I think there's the one dress, the specifically. Dress. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's two dresses, but there's one dress, which is the dress. Um, the other thing is, um, it was nominated for Best Actor. And I'm going to let you guys think about that for a while. Which actor was nominated for the Oscar? Because there's two, there's two leads in this film, obviously, from the male perspective. Which one is it? So, um, originally... Oh, it also won a, a Golden Globe for Best Actor. Same actor was who was nominated for the actor, uh, the Oscar, won the Golden Globe. Won a Golden Globe for Best Picture for a comedy, and it won a Golden Globe for Best Actress for one Miss Marilyn Monroe. And this is the question I want us to think about: Is Marilyn Monroe a good actress in this film? So, um, Marilyn Monroe had it in her contract that any film she was in had to be in color. For whatever reason, that was in her contract. And they had to talk her out of enforcing that clause in her contract. Because when they put Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon in drag and did the makeup, they said in color, it looks horrific. The word word grotesque was actually used. And so... um, That's interesting, actually, because the, the, like... DVD cover or poster or whatever is is obviously in color, isn't it? But much... It's modern color. So yeah. it's been digitally kind of enhanced, hasn't I guess. it? But but when I looked at that before we watched the film, I was like, oh, God, what are we about to watch? This looks awful. But then when I saw them in the film, I thought it looked much more normal. Yeah. 
Well, anyway, that's so they end up talking her into it because they saw how bad it was. So while we're talking about the transformation of Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon from men into women, they actually brought this um, burlesque performer, this male burlesque dancer, in to try and teach them how to walk in heels. And they went for about, I don't know, about a week. And then finally Jack Lemmon went, no, no, you don't get it. The point isn't I don't want to look good walking in heels. I need to look like a man pretending to be a woman walking in heels. So he kind of just walked out and quit on on the whole premise. And I think Jack Lemmon got it on a certain level that nobody else did. And so when they thought they had the look perfected, Tony Curtis had an idea, and he said to Lemon, forget going to show the bosses, come with me. And they went out, and they went into a women's toilet. And they started just, like, acting like they were women, putting on their makeup and sort of just doing some small talk. And when none of the other women in the toilets, like, went, ah, men, (laughs) they went, we can pass. This is good. This is the final look. (laughs) So that was the big sort of test for did this kind of work. Um, a really great story, in a sense, is when the um, costumier was measuring up Marilyn Monroe for one of her dresses. The costumier jokingly went, you know, Marilyn, Tony Curtis has a much more attractive butt than you do. <laughs> to which point, apparently, Marilyn pulled down her blouse and said, yes, but does he have a chest like this? And she used <laughs> she used different words, but <laughs> it was, uh, I thought, and this is a really interesting time in Marilyn's uh, kind of life in a sense um and she was a lot of problems on the set they said uh more often than not she'd show up two hours late three hours late she wouldn't know any of her lines and even when she sort of had the basic lines down she would trip over herself over and over and over again so much so that lemon and curtis would have bets on the how many takes it would take them to get through it and they both reacted kind of differently Curtis kind of got frustrated by it, whereas Jack Lemmon kind of went, you know, he's not thrilled about the fact doing like 50 takes, but he is going, she brings something to the film that no one else can do because she's Marilyn Monroe. And she uses the advantages she has and overcomes the limitations she has better than anybody that there is. She's just maybe not the best conventional actress. Um, and then her husband, the playwright Arthur Miller, who did The Crucible, and her acting coach were on set and were constantly pitching the director on changes he should make, and that did not help things go well either. Um, the film is banned or was banned in Kansas because of its cross-dressing. <laughs> and, uh, but generally, it's held to an extremely high standard, and Richard Roud from The Guardian says it's as close to perfection as a film can get. So, that, that was... Sorry, did I sit through the same film <laughs> as he did? Yeah, I'm just saying, this is the, the film. The second act of this film was about an hour and a half long, and the whole <laughs> film's only two hours. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to go now, and we're going to go ahead, and we're going to find out why our friends from Little Bitch Podcast, Dan and Marshall, why they decided to go with this film. So, we're going to hear from them, and then we're going to go ahead and do our deep dive. Does that sound all right? Sounds good. Okay, so stay tuned. We're going to throw to... Uh, my conversation with them from earlier, and then we're back for the deep dive. Back in a sec. So right now we are joined by Dan and Marshall from the Little Bitch Podcast. Hello, gentlemen. How are we today? Hello. I, uh, we're yeah. very good. So though we've talked about you a couple times in the podcast, well, if you could just take a couple seconds and just sort of explain what your podcast is, kind of the, the, the format of what you do. So the, the podcast is basically just us having a bit of a moan and a bitch about different things that we come across in day-to-day life 
So we'll each pick a topic okay. every week and bring it to the table and we'll have a bitch about it, as we like to call it. Um, and then at the end of the podcast, we'll sort of throw it out to the listener and they can decide who whose topic was better and who they thought had the better bit. Yeah, it's just quite... It's quite therapeutic for us. We get a lot off our chest. It really is. We, 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 we feel do. very relieved afterwards, don't we? Very, very light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what sort of... It's our therapy session. So what sort of topics have you guys covered so far? Ooh, I mean, some of mine have been... I mean, uh, last week it was chores. And then chores, we've yeah. had things like music festivals and all the horrible things that go with that. And... <laughs> uh, there's been so many I can't even remember <laughs> I, know so, I, caught, uh, I know I caught driving the, the, the one week as well yeah, so yeah. I talked about driving I talked about Disney I talked about unicorns <laughs> hating, hating unicorns or unicorn haters which one was the bitch um, I think we found out that I really love unicorns <laughs> yeah it, it was supposed I, to be hating unicorns about it. It was supposed to be on the label. It was supposed to be about unicorns. And then I just thought, actually, I'm a big fan of unicorns somewhere <laughs> down there. So it's, it's a really interesting format. Whose idea was this? It was sort of a joint thing, really. Like, I mean, yeah. the, the name of it stemmed from just us insulting each other mainly. Insulting each other in an Australian accent. <laughs> yeah, a little bitch. <laughs> Yeah, we started off insulting each other and then it became a term of endearment and then it became a, a title for a podcast. <laughs> it, it, it was always an endearment thing. I've never called you a bitch and meant it. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> not, not, to, not to his face. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how are they getting back to you? What sort of um, format or forums can they get back to you on? So we do it on social media mainly. We'll put like a poll up on either Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and then they can just vote on those either like on a story post or comment underneath the post that we put yeah. up. After we, the we do all three, don't we? We do all three, but like Facebook tends to be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody really does the Facebook. It is it is hard to get engagement with people. It really, it really is. Yeah. It really is. It really you kind is. Of, you can look at these things from from a distance, and you go, "Oh, it'll be. We'll just throw this out here, here, and here, and it's going to be great. We can interact with people." And then you find uh, not really so much. I find I'm doing a lot more just on my on my personal socials and getting people to sort of chip in that way, as opposed to yeah. A big part, just from listening to your podcast, that's been enjoyable, is the banter or the dynamic between the two of you guys bouncing <laughs> off each other. You guys must have known each other a long time. Yeah, we, we've been friends seven or eight years now. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. Long, 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 long time. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we met through a mutual friend and then kind of just became closer from that. And yeah, we've just been kind of best friends ever since, really. And so this was just kind of a... Aww. It was a driving in the car idea. Like, well, let's do a podcast together. Why not? <laughs> I mean, how much of this was born from like you guys just kind of having a go about things that you really just don't like, and finally going, actually, we should kind of be doing something with this because we're just doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, a I lot did. of it was just like the banter between ourselves, like at the gym and like just watching wrestling and stuff, and we just everyone had always comment on like the banter between ourselves, and we just thought. Because we were listening to podcasts, weren't we, in the car? Yeah. And we're just like, oh, we, we, we should give it a go. Like, why not? 
And um, I think it was Marshall suggested giving it a go. And then I was like, well, why don't we? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go for it. It's it's remarkable how easy that step is from finally going, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it. To all of a sudden you find yourself going, oh, I actually have like a podcast and people yeah. listening or interacting or, or all sorts of things. It's uh, I, I think that's been the biggest like sort of mind-blowing aspect of it is like, we're now official like podcasters like we we have a podcast and we have people that listen and engage with us and it's yeah. just so surreal it's gone from um uh, talking about it to actually doing it and then actually being part of the podcast community it's so strange yeah and the the reach as well like when you find out that you've been listened to in different countries completely like we found out we had yeah. a listener in south africa the other day it's like, <laughs> what how's that happened <laughs> so you guys are now available on pretty much the majority of main sort of um outlets on podcatchers yeah, yeah the main think, ones we're on we think so <laughs> most recently you guys have finally hit apple podcasts <laughs> yes <laughs> After, After a long, all the hate. A long battle. <laughs> <laughs> a long, long, long battle. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are thrilled to have you guys on because you are our first sort of listener request on, on, on the Best Film Ever sort of podcast. And whose idea was it to submit uh, Some Like It Hot? Well, it, it was mine. It was mine. <laughs> well, so, um, uh, Oh, Hopefully, you guys didn't come to bitch on the film, but to sort of pray. Isn't that like a line from like Caesar? I came not to 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 to, to bury Caesar, but to praise him, <laughs> or something like that. Hopefully, you didn't come to bitch about some like it hot. Why some like it hot, Dan? Well, it it is one of my favorite films. I do really like it, and um, so we was gonna fill. Uh, we was gonna record the um, conspiracy and whatever Marshall talks about. Um, at the conspiracy <laughs> episode, football, conspiracy oh, football, yes. and football. So we was gonna um, do that, and as I said in that podcast, I was just watching um, a documentary about the murder of Marilyn Monroe, and it showed a clip of some like that, and I was like, that really is one of the best films she's ever done, uh, probably one of the best films ever, and I was like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just tweet him. I was like, oh, you should do some like it hot because I know it's uh, it's one of the films that have been voted quite a lot as like the best comedy ever made, like the best film Marilyn Monroe's ever done. Um, so I, I was literally walking up to the uh, pod, uh, the podcast bit where I I do the recording, and I was like sending the tweet, and I deleted it a couple of times because I was like. Do they even take submissions? I was like, oh, they can just say no if not. And I just <laughs> sent, the, sent the tweet, sat down, recorded the episode in, like, me and Marshall, like, discussed sort of afterwards for, like, maybe half an hour, like, what's the next plan? And I told, like, Marshall that I'd submitted it and it was going to be in a future episode. So I was quite happy with that. <laughs> yeah, it was excellent. I think... Uh... Um, more often than not, I, I'm sort of setting the schedule for, we, we do have a sort of a rotation system, but there's also a films, for instance, the film we're going to do next week has just sort of had a big anniversary. So sort of those things kind of dr- sort of fit themselves in. But every now, so I guess more often than not, I'm scheduling. But when I was able to go, hey, we've actually had a, a, a request from, from outside. And Liam's like, you're, you're joking. And I think it was a similar dynamic with me and Liam <laughs> if he was here where he's going, yeah, I'll do a podcast. And then. He was he, every time I, I read him the numbers because he doesn't he doesn't really by his own admission he's not really a 
a techie kind of guy, so he has no idea, kind of if I didn't tell him how many listens we've got. But when I go, hey, we've, 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 we've hit this, he always goes, I'm stunned anybody's listening to us. <laughs> if, if anybody's listening, please don't take this as your time to go, oh, all right, then, and turn it off. Please do keep, keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> but, but yeah, so um, I'll tell you what. We're going to stop. We're going to go ahead and do our deep dive, and then if we can call you guys back, that would be great. How, is, is that all right? Yeah. Not a problem. That would be brilliant. Excellent. And we're back. That was Dan and Marshall from the Little Bitch Pod. Aren't they nice guys? They're uh, really nice. They I love really their accents. Really. Yes, they do. I had no clue where they were from when I first heard their podcast. But, ni- <laughs> but nice guys, they definitely are. And definitely, I mean, I, I say this not just because we're doing a collab. I, I listen to their podcast weekly. It's, 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 it's a good laugh. It's a nice bit of irreverence. They get the, uh, the, the Ian stamp of approval. So uh, if we deep dive now into Some Like It Hot... Uh, we have, I mean, it's kind of an old school credits with a jazzy feel because they haven't told us when it is yet. And we just have this opening shot of some of the most unlikely looking pallbearers in the world inside this very kind of 1920s, 30s, you're not really quite sure era car. And there's some cops you find out quickly that are following behind them. But there is so much screeching they've added in post to this scene. <laughs> And they've sped up the videotape on some of these crashes. And I know it's the time. I do. But I was sitting there going, okay, I got to get in my classic movie mindset and not judge it by today's standards. Oh, absolutely. If you can't do it well in the standards that you've got in the day, why do it at all? And in case people weren't sure about Americans and their penchant for guns, uh, we have the guns come out and the cops just open fire. Like we're driving down the middle of a road and they are just unleashing fire and the bad guys unleash fire back. But the cops shoot first. That was the remarkable thing. Liam, something to add? Yeah. Did anybody else notice how no one ducked or dived for the bullets? And yet they were right beside him, window smashing. Oh, window smashing. And, and just non-fussed. No non-fussed. Not fussed at all. And then we find out Normal everyday. The, Walking apart. the coffin starts leaking and then we find out they're smuggling booze, and it gives you an idea of kind of where in the time frame we are. And then it comes just up. Just in case you're not sure. <laughs> Chicago, 1929, which I did not know we were going to be doing back to back. Chicago. Back to back Chicago films based roughly around the same yeah. timeline, that 20s, 30s timeline with music involved. I really enjoyed this opening scene. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to, what to think about the film because I didn't really know anything about it before we started, but. The kind of sudden change from all solemn coffin to gun chase, I thought was really interesting. I just love that the cops were willing to murder these guys in cold blood in the streets just to stop them from running booze. (laughs) Especially since they're in a hearse. Like, if they got the wrong hearse, that could have been bad. Like, that wouldn't have been good, would it? They didn't find with with the siren or or the sound, because obviously they wouldn't have lights back then. But just like, okay, open fire. I'm thinking, bullets, if you miss the car, like, there are other people you could hit. Yeah. It's all right. The bullets didn't actually make bullet holes unless it was in a prop that needed them. So it's okay. (laughs) Someone brought brought their cynical cynical earbuds for today's uh, podcast, which is great. And so we have a scene where the, and I wish I had his name down, I meant to write it down and I've forgotten, where the detective who's kind of heading up the case decides to get the last bit of confirmation from the informant, just so as the audience we get to find out this information. And um, he like shakes down the informant for the last time, like within eyesight of like the joint where he can't be fingered as yeah. being the informant. I'm like, that feels a bit sloppy. Toothpick Charlie, I think, is the is the... Um, 
Yes, the guy that gets killed. He's the squawker. His last toothpick. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. it. Um, and so the, the 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 cop goes in. He knows all the the sort of ways to get in. He says he's one of the pallbearers, which is the, the password to get in. And they pull on this organ. I loved the organ. They pull on this one knob the on the organ. organ stop, yeah. The door <laughs> opens, and like it is the most soundproof building in yeah. all of Chicago. Like I gave a hard time when we did theory of everything for how soundproof that house with a party was going on in Cambridge. <laughs> but like this was like they were inside like the funeral home and you couldn't hear anything. And then you open it up and we're in a speakeasy. Which is Can great. we just appreciate that the name of the funeral parlor is Mozzarella's funeral parlor. I loved that. And in my notes I put Mozzarella's funeral parlor? Mozzarella? That's aged great. Funny for a cheese that doesn't. <laughs> which I just really enjoyed. <laughs> I made myself laugh in my note. That was well delivered, Georgia, I must say. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, and, and speaking of cheesy, I mean, some of this dialogue is 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 hella cheesy, right? Say goodbye, yeah. Charlie. Goodbye, Charlie. I'm like, no, you're just doing like a mob hit in like two seconds. Like, this is, and you're afraid for your life. Like, this is not the time for this back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I went, this feels of its time. Like, this is very 1950s kind of script writing. And the one dancing girl that looked directly into the camera just before it all went on getting a five seconds of fame i missed that and so we follow the cop and he sits down and he orders a drink and it's coffee of course his is going to be scotch coffee because we call things coffee rather than the drink and then we have an a cut to and we we zoom in on two instruments um the 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 stand-up bass and the saxophone player and we quickly get these are our two main guys because there's about to be a stop in the music for a banjo solo, which is going to give them the ability to hear each other for about three and a half minutes of dialogue. Like, how long is this solo? That is very accurate for jazz. And, and we get the entire backstory. But if you listen to the track, the bass does come back in. The saxophone doesn't, but the bass does pick back up. And yet, of course, the bass player is sitting there having a chin wag. And they're broke, and they, they're like, well, thankfully, we're going to have this job. And this I is where... Just, sorry, at this point, I'd just like to make a point, and I will come back to it at the right at the end of the film. One of them is obsessed with girls, and one, one is obsessed with money. Can we agree that? Is that is that about right? One likes money, one likes girls? That's I kind of what they talk about. I didn't get the idea that one was obsessed with money. Maybe I got the one's a responsible oh, one. Yeah, even, I mean, oh, he's the, the one that wants the money, though. But he's not even that responsible. But yeah, exactly. at the start, Joe is very much oh, like, on. let's let's gamble all our money. Yeah, yeah. no, money. no, it does. It does link in later. Yeah, well, let's come back to that because I think you've definitely got something there. Um, And so this is an interesting story about how does Jack Lemmon get involved? Because Tony Curtis was was like a star, but Jack Lemmon was not. And so originally the studio wanted Frank Sinatra for this role. But Frank Sinatra stood up Billy Wilder, the director, for, for a meeting. Billy Wilder also wrote this along with his uh, screenwriting partner. And uh, as a result, he, uh, Billy Wilder was, was thankful because Sinatra had a better reputation for being a bit of a handful on set himself. And so he's like, and he, he always wanted Jack Lemmon. It's like, I can get Jack Lemmon, but they said they want someone with bigger name value. Well, once he got Marilyn Monroe, he could then get Jack Lemmon because they were happy. Yeah. They had their two big stars and the one big, big star who gets top billing in the credits, Marilyn Monroe. And so they start having a conversation, uh, our good friends Joe and Jerry, and they start talking about, well, what if there's a raid? Because they have a job for the first time in forever. But what if there's a raid? And I think it's Joe who starts listing all the things that are more likely than if this place gets raided. Amongst them, what if the Dodgers leave Brooklyn? 
What if the stock market crashes? Uh, what if there's two people, some actors? What if they get divorced? And all these things, of course, happen. It's dramatic irony. Yeah. We all get to go, ha, 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 ha. All these things happen very, very shortly. And there is a raid. They're absolutely right. And um, as a result, the, the copper tries to take down the big bad mafia guy. But the really the story we're following now is that these two musicians are now out of a job and are too poor to even own a coat. And we flash to the next day and it's snowing and it's cold in Chicago. And they go up to like Chicago's version of Tin Can Alley. Like it's like one office building where like all the music offices are located in the same place. Yeah. yeah in, in New York, in Tin Can Alley, that's actually the way it would be. You'd have all these music publishers all in one spot. So all the musicians could sort of pool together and it would be really easy to go through the musical production process. But, that makes sense. Yeah. So they wanted to like put it in, use New York's lifestyle, but put it in Chicago. Well, I, I think they really wanted that Chicago gangland Tommy yeah. Gunn era. And so... Um, we have, they finally come across the last one and we meet Nellie, who I thought was going to be a bigger character in the film, but is not. And they're begging for a job and you get quite clearly that uh, Joe has stood up Nellie. Was supposed to come over, did not come over. She made him pizza. He didn't come around to eat the pizza. And so he's begging for a job and she goes, oh, sure, we have a job and gives a wink that is so blatant that Stevie Wonder could see it. <laughs> but, but neither of our two, um, our two male leads picked up on it at all. And they think their luck is turned around. They, Joe kisses Nellie. She's going to make it up to her. They go in the room where we find out the big surprise. The reveal is. They're after an all-girl band, not a couple of guys in the band. And so, but they are offered a job somewhere else, which was like 100 miles away. And so there's a small bit where we get the idea that we're establishing here, Joe is a womanizer. And he's good at it. He's good at it. Because, you know, Nellie, even though she's mad and played a joke on him, she gives him the car to go for their gig. And as they go down to get the car from the garage... It just so happens to be when the mob boss from the first scene has figured out that Toothpick Charlie's the one who ratted them out, and he's there to um, to avenge the situation. Um, this is based off of Al- well, the the the, the, um, the mobster whose name I can't believe I've not written down anywhere in my notes. I have written oh, well, what's down. the name of his book cover? Uh, scenes with the sh- spats. Spats. Yeah. yeah. So Spats is based off of Al Capone, and this is and this is based off of the Valentine's Day Massacre. That's right. So they go there and they rub them out, and they they're playing cards, and they sh- um, Spats and his and his lawyers, who are all just mobsters, uh, they shoot down uh, Toothpick Charlie and all of his mates, and it ends with um, Spats kicking a toothpick out of the mouth of. Toothpick Charlie. The actor playing Spats was so terrified he was going to kick him in the head. <laughs> he like kept like overcompensating and like missing him by a mile. And the director, Billy Wilder, got really frustrated and was like, it's not that difficult. And he went to show him and he kicks the poor <laughs> bastard playing Toothpick Charlie right in the head. Oh, I guess. <laughs> so the agreement was they took a nail, they painted it like a, uh, a matchstick or a tooth it was matchstick right toothpick matchstick toothpick, toothpick. they painted it like like a toothpick and then kicked it and that worked on the first take once they switched oh. it 
But yeah, <laughs> I just love it. The director like kicked him in the head. <laughs> now, because I mean, our, not for the guy being because good. our two musicians are there to pick up the uh, vehicle, and it's in the garage, and they're picking up uh, Nelly's car. They see everything go down, and uh, they get spotted by the mob boss. Uh, spats. Movie's got, movie. got a movie. This is our inciting incident that causes the problem. Because they can't just hide quietly. That was the thing. I mean, the one who plays uh, Jack Lemmon's character, Jerry, really kind of gives it away. Like they were totally, even the guy filling the gas tank was covering for them. Yeah. Totally didn't give up the fact there were two more guys there. They were hiding. Yep. It would have been fine. But we had to get to the point where we have a movie. And so here we go. And so they quickly realize that if Spatz knows that there's two of them, everybody's going to be looking for them. Now, how everybody's going to know who these two are, as long yeah. as you don't carry and your... what they look like. Exactly. As long as you don't carry your instruments with you, that double bass is a dead giveaway. Yeah. But, like, leave the bass behind and you're probably okay. I guess then they wouldn't have any money at all, though, would they? But I do think their original plan of growing beards would have probably been a better one. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a bit of a long-term plan. Um, and so they make the idea that um, they're going to... So they say, say goodbye, Charlie, and we get, hello, Charlie, and the script starts to do the first of many callbacks. And then they decide they're going to go ahead and they f- they phone the um, music office they were at earlier and they pretend on the phone to be women. And apparently phoning someone in Chicago in 1929 and saying you can play an instrument is enough to get you a job. <laughs> because there's no audition. Because nope. they had, to be fair, they had to find, it was made quite clear, we have to find somebody for 8 o'clock tonight. And so they show up. And so as they're walking up to the train in drag, sort of walking, talking about the difficulties of being a woman, which mainly seem to be it's drafty and heels and heels are really hard to walk in. Uh, They're not wrong. And at this point, we get our first glimpse of Marilyn Monroe. 25 minutes and 30 seconds into the film for your top build star. And she walks by them, and then we go from a point of view shot, which I think is supposed to be from Jerry's. And I don't know if anybody else noticed, but this is just Marilyn Monroe's backside. Yep. And that's the first sort of real shot we get, is this character is a sex object. I don't think you could fail to notice, really, could you? It was pretty, like, explicit. (laughs) And as she's walking by one of the trains, this gust of steam, like, pushes her aside and envelops her backside for, for a moment. And it's very reminiscent, Liam, I thought, of the seven-year itch, which is that famous shot where she walks over the grate and the grate blows her dress up. Yeah. And it was the same director uh, who worked with Marilyn back then. It's the same one. So it's like he was Mm -hmm. going, I had this one iconic shot. I'm going to try and create a second one. I don't think it's nearly as remembered. No. But it it does work to go, she is so attractive, even the train is kind of um, notices. (laughs) Noti- I'm going to say notices. Train ejaculation. Train has got steam on the hell. It's the steam on, yes. <laughs> chugga chugga choo choo. And in, ca- in case we didn't get that they're clearly viewing her as a sexual object, Jerry says, well, would you look at that? Uh, it's like jello on springs. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and they're thinking, we can't do this. We really can't go away with this. And then a timely newspaper boy gives like a newspaper. It's like, Extra, extra, Valentine's Day massacre. Mob boss vows to kill anybody who was there. <laughs> like the most ridiculous expositional line ever. They're like, okay, we're getting on. Exposition, exposition, exposition read, all about, read it. all about it. And they decide we're going to get on this train. And then 
uh, they go ahead, they give their names as they get on the train. First is Joe, who's going to go by Josephine. Clever. But Gerald's deci- Jerry's decided he's not going to go by Geraldine. He decides he's going to be Daphne. And so they lie and say they went to some conservatory. It was a, con- it was a conservatory, right? Yeah. Yeah, conservatory of music. And they go, okay. And then how do we know that Daphne is passing? When the chaperone, like, smacks her on the backside as she walks up. That's how you go, oh, she's, look, he thinks she's a girl because he feels it's okay to, like, you know, sexually harass her. Oh, well, if she's a woman, that's, that's fine then. Was, isn't it? What was his name? I keep I forgetting like this. Beanstalk. Beanstalk. It? That is it. Mr. Beanstalk. I don't know why. He's not very tall. And then we could get a moment where Jack Probably Lemon... a reference to his penis, Ellie. Do you think so? <laughs> Yeah, come okay. on. He's a man that works with a load of women right. and he's nicknamed Beanstalk. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then we get some wisdom from Daphne slash Jerry who goes, it's kind of like a dream I had once where I was locked in a bakery with all these sweet goods and I, uh, anything I wanted, but then I woke up or something like that. And I'm like, wow, women are like pastries. This is the message <laughs> that we're being told here. And as they're having this argument, they barge into a room and poor Marilyn Monroe, poor Marilyn, no one else will be with her and she's drinking by herself. But from the time that they burst through the door, she has enough time to take a giant swig, look over at them, take a second and go, oh, (laughs) I didn't see you there. And then I swear we had some of the worst line delivery I may have ever seen in a film in this opening scene. Where she admits that she's an alcoholic. If she gets caught drinking one more time, they're going to throw oh, her she, off the train. She doesn't admit she's an alcoholic. She says she can stop anytime she wants, yes, but sorry. she doesn't want to. Yeah, the, film, the film tells her she's an alcoholic. She doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And that she has a tendency of... No, that comes later, the whole tenor sax story. Yeah. But I've got written down... She sings and she plays the ukulele, but she doesn't have much of a voice. I've got written down in my notes here, how damaged is this girl? And then I've got how expositional is this girl? Because they go through this whole thing and the two men don't want to have a swig because it is prohibition and drinking's illegal. But um, it just felt a bit a bit strange, our introduction. The film does assume that you know the laws of 1920s Chicago, though. I, Several times at the, in the beginning. Well, I think most people do. If it's 1959, you definitely would. If it was I, 1959 I, yeah, in America, that, you, you definitely would. You kind of go would. watching it back, I was going... Uh, oh yeah, okay. Like, wasn't immediately obvious. To be fair, I think that despite them making some things incredibly obvious, that wasn't one of them. Well, I think the opening scene with the casket full of whiskey and the and the speakeasy actually do open you up to that. Then we cut to uh, Marilyn leaves and says, "Oh, you're great gals." And then we cut to our first of a few songs called "Running Wild," and you know. I guess you got the I guess you got that time to kill on the train. Why not? And it kind of speaks to on our other podcast, Talking the Mickey, uh, which you can find on all you know reputable podcatchers. Uh, we talked about how. Did you drop the phone? Yeah, <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs> on our other podcast, Talking the Mickey, we talked about how an old um, stage. A trick to get music into a movie or into a stage show was to make one of the characters a musician so the music happens organically. And so we see that happening again here where they're going, well, we need a song. Well, we all have to practice on the way down. So they go, okay. And I think this is when Marilyn's at her best is when she gets to just be the singer. Definitely. Yeah. And she can't play the ukulele. 
No. <laughs> and here's the theory. There's an urban legend I came across in that a ukulele requires two hands to play. But a ukulele is also very small, and so in playing it, it kind of forces your arms into your body, <laughs> which would then accentuate your breasts and cleavage to the camera. And so that was the theory about why they didn't just let her be a singer. She had to play the ukulele at the same point. <laughs> Not that she ever plays the ukulele while she's singing. Well, she had she, to hold the ukulele. On the, on the, on the, on the initial... On the train she on does. the rehearsal, yeah. 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 Uh, and then, so uh, here's the question. This is a good time to do it. Is Marilyn Monroe a good actress? I'm going to say she's a good reactor. She reacts to situations rather than acts. Mm-hmm. Because Wilder was very patient with her with how many takes he took with her. Yeah. Um, and I think he gave every scenario he possibly could for her to understand. And... I think she just reacted in her way to certain situations. So that he'd explain a situation to her and what's going on and give her a scenario. Then they'd spout lines to her and the lines wouldn't necessarily come out as natural for other people, but natural for her in the way she speaks. Yeah. So it's more Marilyn-esque than it is trying to be somebody else, if that makes sense. George is Marilyn in the movie. George, your thoughts about that? Marilyn Monroe, um, good actress. See, I don't know anything about Marilyn Monroe, and this is the first time I've actually seen her move or talk. Like, I don't ever seen pictures of her before. Um, so, assuming, I, I don't know. I don't know because I've not seen. I've not got anything to compare it to. Okay. Um, I think it was all right. Okay. I don't think it was a great job. Um, what for the part she played? She played it well. I just don't think it's a very interesting part. Okay, Ellie. She was on the good side of okay. Um, I think when she's like we say when she's doing her singing bit, she's very good at performing and kind of like oozing that sexuality while she's in that kind of role of the singer. But when she's actually just doing the dialogue, it's a little bit wooden. But I don't know with with these kind of more the older films. I do think you get a lot of that more wooden kind of acting generally, and I don't know if it's perhaps because of the the lack of the added cinematography and you know having to do it in fewer cuts and you know all the different challenges they might have had to face at the time that makes it come across that way but and you've also got to understand that um that's the early days of realism acting how acting changed mm. with a lot of kazan and We've, you've got a lot less to study and, haven't you yeah and you've got i mean she she was in the actor's studio she used to sit in and watch and observe she never did anything She'd watch stuff. So you'd have like Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Marlon Brando, James Dean, all those people who were in that ilk, Al Pacino, who did the actor studio, who had more believability. That was early days for them. So acting back in the 50s was different to what we have today. Yeah. I agree. But there, I mean, there are some scenes in this movie. Some scenes aren't, aren't bad, but there are some scenes where the line delivery is amongst the worst I've ever seen on film. But again, you've also got to understand she was not in a very good place as a person in her life at the time. So turning up late, not being in the right frame of mind, depends on how you deliver lines. You know? Although I completely agree with that. If we're judging it purely as an acting performance, that doesn't none of that matters. Yeah, I and think that's kind of where I'm going, yeah. And therefore we can judge it as two different things. Like, you know, I'm sure she was a lovely person, and if she was going through a hard time, then that's horrible. But unfortunately... 
like with most other jobs, you turn up at your work, you put what your personal business behind you and you get on with your job. And if you allow your personal life to affect your job to the point that we're going, that's a bad performance then, then I think that's a measure of acting ability as well as personal life management. So if we can just table this, let's come back to that because I think it's going to be something I want to come back to throughout. Um, and so at this point, we're getting ready for our first night on the train and Jack Lemon is, it's really weird. He has to have this pep talk given to him. Like if we don't give this to him, he's going to sexually copulate with every girl on the train. But Tony <laughs> Curtis has to tell him, remember, you're a girl, you're a girl, you're a girl. And he goes, I'm a girl, I'm a girl, I'm a girl. And I thought around this time that if they were going to remake this film in the last 20 years or so, if you had done it, this would be like an Owen Wilson, Vince Vaughn double team kind of thing where you know jack lemon's the kind of more quirky one but he's like the one you naturally like so he'd be like the owen wilson character and vince vaughn would be the bit more kind of uh daring but outlandish yeah so vince vaughn and owen wilson would kind of be who i would imagine if you maybe not too maybe not 2020 because they're a bit old in the tooth now but maybe like it was 2010 like wedding crashers kind of era i might do that who would you cast as sugar in a modern day take I think I'd cast Scarlett Johansson and it's not because she's a bad actress. I'm not saying she's an equally (laughs) bad actress. I'm saying if you want someone who carries a sort of sexuality, sexual magnetism about them the minute they appear on screen, I think Scarlett Johansson's that. I'd have said Reese Witherspoon. No. Really? As like this, she's kind of like the quirky, fun, but she's not that like every man turns their head and watches her like as she walks by. What about Angelina Jolie? Really? See, Jolie, you still have to be funny to do this, and Jolie's never shown comedic chops. Okay, yeah. No. Who is it? Who's the lead in Pitch Perfect? What's her name? Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Yeah, I think she could do it. Oh, no. Definitely not. She's got the comic chops, but I don't think she has that sexual... It's a really hard combination. I think she could could have, though. I think she would have, yeah. I'm going to stick with ScarJo on that. I'm going to stick with Reese Witherspoon on that. (laughs) We're all all immovable. Amanda Seyfried? I don't know... She's funny, maybe. I mean, she's, she's an she, equally bad actress. She, so. <laughs> honey, honey. Uh, so. Honey, honey, the song is forever. Uh-huh. Please stop it. So then we have everybody gets locked up into kind of their blanket bunks, which we're told are like, if you make a whisper, everybody will hear you. <laughs> so then Sugar... By the way, interesting that her name is Sugar, and we find this out after he makes the comparison of a bakery and all these baked goods, and her name is Sugar. Oh, yeah. But Sugar comes and basically, like, I don't say knock on the door, but she doesn't do that. She kind of, like, just rips open the blanket or whatever that's, that conceals the compartment. Good job he hadn't taken his wig off, isn't it? Because we didn't mention this. At the end of the song, Running Wild, her flask falls out, and, of course, uh, she's going to be thrown off, but then Jack Lemmon says it's mine, and they go... Oh, well, it's only your first offense. That's fine. And they go, remember, no booze and no men. And so um, then Honey, honey, uh, then Sugar tries to like cozy up with Jack Lemon's character, Daphne. And uh, Jack Lemon goes, oh, no, no. He's obviously worried that she's going to get a little bit too handsy. And he goes, oh, I have a cold. At which point um, Sugar tells us, well, she has low, low resistance. So that means right now she'd definitely be quarantining at home and not going back to work anytime soon. Because that's my one coronavirus joke per episode. And then 
I don't know what happens, but Sugar decides to like invite everybody else to this party. Oh, but they get the they get the whiskey from um from Joe first, and this scene really annoyed me because Joe he's so Jerry bends down to the bottom bunk to steal the whiskey from Joe, but he's literally hanging completely upside down, and his wig doesn't come off. And then also Sugar's holding him up by the legs from the top bunk, and he's wearing a nighty. So that would completely fall down, and she would see everything. Like whether that everything is, you know, hopefully yep. he's wearing boxes or something. But the other, the other girls had like um, shorts, pantaloons on, and yeah. like cheap short things. So uh, you'd assume okay. you'd have them on as well, yeah. I, so I just also, have to get annoyed about the wig then. I think I've done like yeah, helicopters. But, I think it's just suspension but, of disbelief. But at other times of the film, they just tear their wigs off, so they clearly aren't pinned in. It's just suspension of disbelief, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, at, at this point, uh, Sugar and Josephine go off to uh, a room, and this is where she kind of lays out that she's always had a thing for tenor saxes. And up until this point, Joe's been playing it quite cool and hasn't shown any interest in her. It's been it's been uh, Jack Lemmon's character who's been gaga for her. Uh, and this is why that bugs me. Yeah, at this point, he's now all in. yeah. But he's had no interest from day one. No interest. But he finds out that she can't help. This is day one. But she can't. Well, you know what I mean. She can't help but like, you know, sexually, you know, fall for these men, these tenor sax players. He's like, I'm I'm a tenor sax player. And that's that's good enough for him. And this is where we find out Sugar's plan. Sugar's plan is to go to Florida and marry a millionaire, but one with glasses. Because, and I have this written down here, as someone who wears glasses myself. Men who wear glasses are so much more gentle and sweet and helpless. That's <laughs> me out. One of those is correct. I had it until, oh, geez, I hope it's not the helpless one. I was joking. Okay. Meanwhile, we cut back to uh, Jack Lemon's character and like all the girls, and they're bringing like food. And he's making quite a reasonable thing, going, I'm going to get ants. <laughs> if you know I, mean. I missed that. <laughs> they're bringing like, like Polish sausage and stuff like that into the bunk. Cheese and crackers, And there's yeah. nowhere near enough. It was a It was a squeeze when it was sugar and, uh, and Daphne. Like, you've got like 12 girls mm. trying to get in here. And I did have a yeah. problem with the fact that for most of this, um, Tony Curtis's character was supposed to still be asleep in the bunk underneath. Unless yeah. there's like, you know, military grade earplugs in there, there's no way that happens. Yeah. Also, yeah. we get the notion that they need to stay in that top bunk until What's Her Face comes back the other way. Yes. Because she's just gone somewhere. And we never see her come back the other way. They just continue on with their party until goodness knows what happens. Well, what, what, what happens is they start to tickle Daphne. For whatever yeah, reason. Yeah. And he's going, oh, oh yeah, shoot, because yeah. you're about to find out I've got fake boobs and a not-so-fake something else. <laughs> and we can't have you doing that. So he pulls the e-brake, which we were told about earlier in the scene. And it brings... They put the... ice cubes down his back, weren't they? Pardon me? They put ice cubes down his back. Yeah. Put ice cubes down <laughs> his back. And meanwhile, you know, you've got Marilyn Monroe's like trying to... Like this giant hunk of ice. I don't know if he had to do this in the in the 20s or what, but... She was like taking a knife to the this this ice block. It's it was a scary sight. She did a good job. She did do a good <laughs> it job. Was part of a drum kit, wasn't it? She was hacking it with like a symbol, like stick. Oh, and was it really carrying it on a symbol? Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> and so that happens and then we cut that's the end of a scene we've, you al- know. we've also got inappropriate outfit number one in this scene oh yeah because all the other girls are dressed quite quite conservatively which i wouldn't be surprised it seems very weird that everybody else in such such a conservative but marilyn monroe is so sexually provocative the other way she's basically wearing a feather boa as part of her thing it's like a proper negligee isn't it it's it's, it's not- yeah it's lingerie it's weird and no woman would ever want to sleep in that especially like just in an all-girls band trip and she's strangely flirtatious with daphne but night honey yeah honey honey uh so we've got that but then after the e-break we cut to florida and this is the end of the trip and i was thinking it took us a long time to get to florida and uh, I've got written in my notes, because at this point, I believe this, we are now in Florida, and we have a full-fledged love triangle. No, we don't. <laughs> because for whatever reason, you know, Jack Lemon's over it. <laughs> no, like that. For, he was the one who Probably referred to her as like jello on legs or something like that. And now he's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. You go ahead. Yeah, he's, he's probably traumatized about by the money. having all of those uh, women trying to tickle him and put ice cubes down his back while he's trying to pretend to be a woman i yeah. wouldn't like that either and so as they walk up we see all these old millionaires and honey's decided sugar story has decided she doesn't want an old millionaire she wants a young millionaire well then florida might not be the place for you but <laughs> they go to the hotel and the hotel they shot at the hotel and they stayed in the hotel and a big reason why they stayed and shot at the hotel was because then we didn't have to worry about getting Marilyn monroe from her um <laughs> from where she stays to the set. Pretty good. Now, still getting her in front of the camera was a ma- her insecurities were nuts. So they would have to like talk her into it every time. But you at least knew where she was because she would come. Apparently, when they were shooting on location, not location uh, at, at the lot, she would show up late and be things like, "Oh, I forgot the address to the studio." <laughs> it's like, how do, <laughs> how do you forget the address to the studio? But at least here, they can sort of keep an eye on her. And um, there's this is where we first meet Osgood, and Osgood is quite smitten with Daphne, played by Jack Lemon, so much so that they get inside the elevator, and he like she goes to like leave him, like he's trying to rebuff his advances, and he goes no 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 no, and he tells the bellhop once around the once around the block, and <laughs> and and keep your eyes away, and I'm like that is the like most forecasted like. There's going to be some hanky-panky do not... Yeah, it is a product of its time, and I'm trying to go, product mm-hmm. of its time, product of its time. But it's yeah, really yeah. weird to watch it for the first time in 2020. Yeah, it is. I agree. And there's a big slap, and I think we're supposed to go, oh, ha-ha, he got what's coming to him. And then and he's, like, rubbing his cheek, like, oh, she slapped me. She slapped that's not me. a good thing, dude. Like, like, I think we overlook a lot of the sexual harassment because the joke is, they don't get it, it's really a boy. That's the funny part. It's really a boy. But it's, and humor was different back then too, as well. So yeah, I mean, this you know, we 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 do, we have more observational humor back then. It was more slapstick humor. So yeah, you're right. You got to take it for what it is. Yep. Georgia, what was your take? You seem thoroughly unimpressed at this point. It's a beautiful eye roll. Yeah. Um. At this point, I'm kind of going. Well, at least two guys are finally seeing what it's like for a girl on the streets wearing quite a nice dress. Well, I, but. I think that's part of this. I think part of this movie, for, for 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 whatever faults it may have, is that commentary though. 
Yeah, no, that's quite nice. But the annoying thing is, and I'll come back again to it at the end, is that no one learns anything in this film at all. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and, and just in case we thought it was an old guy or a rich guy problem, no, because we meet the bellhop, and the bellhop is smitten with Tony Curtis's character Josephine, and he's like, "Don't worry about, uh, don't worry about leaving your door unlocked. I've got a key card." And I'm like, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, did this guy just admit like I will come into your room while you sleep and like do what I want? I will abuse my staff privileges. Like that was insane. He is creepy and very short. Yes. As as part of this exchange, though, we find out that for some reason, Joe has stolen the suitcase belonging to Mr. Beanstalk. Um, And so as a result, he's got, uh, we find out that Mr. Beanstalk has now lost his glasses and his resort clothing. We're like, well, why would he want to do this? This seems a bit weird. And this is where we find out that for some reason Joe's not going to go to the beach with the other girls. Um, but uh, Daphne, played by Jack Lemon, is, along with Sugar, of course, and everybody else. And at this point, actually, to, to come back to my earlier point, I think um, he is, Jack Lemon's character Daphne, is a little bit still into honey. Sugar. I keep calling her honey. Is a little bit into sugar because he seems very possessive of her attention at the beach. Yeah. yeah, he definitely yeah, wants her to pay attention to him. But then we find out that um, here comes uh, Tony Curtis's character dressed in the loungewear, which he stole from a much smaller man, but mm-hmm. somehow fits him like much a glove. And quite a bit stouter. Yeah. I was like, so what was this guy doing carrying trousers that were too big for him in his and case? This, like, this- and this sailor coat, that uh, jacket, that like would, like it's a long coat on Tony Curtis. <laughs> But and he puts on the glasses, and he begins this um, millionaire character, Shell Junior, who uh, owns all the Shell gas stations. Which doesn't matter if there were no Shell gas stations in 1929. Don't think about that too hard. <laughs> yeah, Liam. Did anyone else have a problem with his accent that he yes. tried to put on? Well, do you know who he was trying to do? Actually, no idea. He was trying to do a rough impression of Cary Grant. Now, Cary Grant saw it and went, I sound nothing like that. <laughs> which, if, which, if it was true that he did sound like that, I wouldn't want to sound like that either. But yeah, that's what he was going for. And the director went, yeah, run with it. I like Tony Curtis as an actor. I like him in quite a lot of films. And to see him in this, when he's playing the billionaire, he's, his accent just really it irritated me more to watch and hear that. Yeah, yeah I didn't mind it because at least it's referenced by the other one that he's like you know no one talks like that right so i was like at least there's that yeah and this yeah. is where we get the setup of the meet cute and i use meet cute in the most liberal sense because meet cute in this case means she's running trip her <laughs> because he, he literally sticks his leg out and she falls and we've already had an admission earlier in this film and you want to talk about representation of women i mean we already had honey admit sugar, sugar. admit we already had sugar admit Oh, I'm not that. I'm not very bright, you see. Like this admit, admittance by you know the, the sexual magnetic character, but she's just a dumb blonde, literally. But she falls over and is like, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and then finds out because Tony Curtis. And it is very funny. He's reading the new, the, the 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 Wall Street Journal upside down, wrong way around, with the cover facing the outside, so she can see it's the Wall Street Journal. And eventually, she goes, "Oh, he's rich." Now, to be fair, at this point, they are mutually using each other. Yeah. Granted, he's lying about who he is, but she's using him because he's rich, and he is using her because she looks like the way she does. Um, 
and he and just when he's starting to hit it off and he's made up this lie about this fake boat he has in comes Daphne to kind of block what's going on uh with the yacht block can I can, can I say that that's not that's not wrong <laughs> in comes Daphne yeah. with the yacht block and so um and then they rush back because they're going to catch him because Joe stayed home to be in the bath. And Joe's made it back and is in the bath. You've also got the title line in that previous oh, scene as well. Yeah. It was, uh, you play that jazz music, at which point Marilyn does a terrible line. Read of, yeah, like over, yeah, it's so hot. <laughs> at which point Tony Curtis goes, well, some like it hot. I, on the other hand, prefer classical, classical music. music. And this is where she steals the girl's cover story, but she went to a conservatory as well and had a coming out party and is really highfalutin herself, which is great because you see the look on Tony Curtis's face when the character realizes that she's stolen their cover story and is like peddling it back to him. Um, and so we have that. And then um, we, we rush back. They find him in the bath. And from this point on, Tony Curtis kind of is the only one pursuing Sugar. And at this point now, Jack Lemon kind of backs down. And this is where we cut to the first performance at the hotel, I Want to Be Loved by You. Which she felt like a completely different character in this song. It's because she was wearing a completely different character in this song. Well, this is the dress. And the dress is another character, I think, in this film. Because... It was like lifting her breasts up, but just had enough, like, was it bedazzling, if you will? Am I using the right terminology here to cover her, um, the parts of her body you would not want shown on film to achieve a rating? It was like the sequins came to, like, just the nipple line, and it was, but the top part was really kind of like a mesh or, like, flesh-colored or something. It's difficult to tell in the kind of I think it was sheer, I think. But, I mean, it was... Very, very revealing. And then you've got the, that back that Liam was talking about as well, where it's just like gaping off her. And my goodness. So the question is, is she being taken advantage of? Or is she aware of what's going on and helping create this image? Or is or is the whole thing like a vicious circle now? Marilyn just, Monroe, you mean? Yeah. Oh, I think she's fully aware. Okay. You don't get into a dress oh, like hey. that and not, not know about yeah. it. Okay. I like to think she was fully aware and was fully confident and was happy with the fact she was like, had become this sexual object because if I was put into the spotlight at that point I was go I would be like sure go for it like I'm gonna look as good as possible so that at least I look as good as possible being taken advantage of. Now this is near the end of her run and uh, Tony Curtis would famously predict I don't think she's got two more films left in her before she dies. He didn't predict it out loud he said he had a premonition he wrote in his biography I think back in 93 that he had a premonition at this point she wouldn't get two more films. And he was right. She wouldn't get two more films out. She was dead by 61, 62. Oh, wow. Yeah. 62. 62. So yeah. there is that. But she is, and this is one of those scenes, Liam. We spoke, we, we had seen, we haven't reviewed it yet, but we have seen uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. We have seen Breakfast at Tiffany's. And... um. As a result, there was that scene where she plays Moon River. Audrey Hepburn plays Moon River. And it felt independent of the rest of the film. In many ways, I Want to Be Loved by You felt different in that we didn't get this headspacey bad line. We have um, Marilyn Monroe, who is just, 
exuding every sexual energy there is. Every eye is on her and she loves that. She is amazing in this scene. She is really great in this scene. And back to our argument, here's my other one. Is Marilyn Monroe a good actress? Because acting surely is more than just line delivery. Acting's got to be, can you control the room? Can you send out an energy that everybody picks up on? And she easily does that. Yeah, I think this is her and her element. Sorry, I can't quite hear you, buddy. She has lots of energy and she has lots of um, charisma. Uh, uh, but as Marilyn Monroe, not as a character. She, when, when she's singing those songs, she's Marilyn Monroe singing those songs, not the character singing yeah. those songs. Yeah, Georgia? Yeah, no, as Liam basically said what I was going to say. I think the difference, there's a difference between being a good actress or actor or whatever and being able to command a room as yourself. Um, and I think the person she puts on as Marin, Marilyn Monroe is who she is. But when she tries to play a different part, that's what, which would actually be the acting part, that doesn't work. And what we're seeing in the bits where she seems to be her best is just her being Marilyn Monroe, not being Sugar Cane. And it's during this song that we get another one of those three and a half minute like instrumental breaks so we can have our two characters talk to each other <laughs> up on stage. And accept a flower delivery. And they always sit side by side. Like they, yeah, they accept a giant bouquet of flowers. That can't even be classed as a bouquet. I don't know what it is. Uh, a, it's a, like a, a basket. A <laughs> it's something. It's a, uh, but, um, and so they refer to Melvies from Satchel Mouth, which is Osgood, whatever, the third, the, the, the old millionaire who's in the back row. And he, like, waves to them and they wave back. And at this point, like, Josephine has a magic idea and takes the, a card that they've, she's already written and puts it in the gift basket. And then the flowers get re-gifted to Sugar as a gift from the millionaire, Shell Oil Jr. And if you're the millionaire and you just watch the car the flowers get delivered are you not noticing two seconds later when they get re-gifted <laughs> yeah just a thought um and then uh the the, the, the the what's on the card is that the millionaire will meet her downstairs by the yacht because osgood's supposed to be taking out daphne and so Daphne's made, they've made an agreement that Daphne, Jack Lemmon's character, is going to keep Osgood busy so that uh, Tony Curtis's character, Josephine, can show, not Josephine, uh, yeah. Shell Oil Jr. <laughs> can show Sugar a good time on the yacht. I still have no idea why Jerry or Daphne, whatever you want to want to call him, agreed to this plan. I have no idea either. I agree. He's never explained either. The, he just kind of goes, does. I it don't does. know why I... It does I don't know explained. why I trust you. Well, it gets explained because he goes, what do you want from this? And the answer is security. The same reason why they want, he wants, because when they get to Florida, Joe wants to leave almost immediately. Whereas it's Daphne who goes, J- Jack Lemon's character who goes, no, no, we've got a good gig here. Look, we've got money. We've got this. We've got that. We've got palm trees. We, we're okay here. Security, security, security. Yeah. So, um, they get back and they go outside and it's nighttime and Tony Curtis escapes through his window and climbs downstairs. And I'm sorry, you can tell me it's nighttime all you want. That was clearly shot in the daytime and they made it look darker in post. Yeah. <laughs> that is daytime. If you get a chance to go back and look at that, that is daytime. It's 
is one of the advantages yeah. of black and white filming, though, I suppose, is I that guess. you can play more with that kind of stuff. And it's made really obvious because in the next, they, they cross cut now between the two dates. Most of the time is spent with Sugar <laughs> and Te- uh, Shell Oil Jr., but occasionally we do flash back to Daphne and Osgood. And when Daphne and Osgood are shown, it's legitimately night. And that's why you can tell. It's so obviously night for them and not night for uh, Tony Curtis of Maryland. But they get on the boat. And um, I have to take the boat backwards. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's an experimental model. And she takes his earrings out. And she's so stupid. She is so stupid. Just as well, isn't it? Yeah. And so they get back there onto the boat. And, of course, he doesn't know where anything is, but he's doing that whole, oh, yes, on Thursdays, I insist they do feed me my, my, my dinner here. And he plays it brilliantly. The character has a, has a great plan. And Tony Curtis, I think, really shines in the date scene. I think the date scene's my favorite Tony Curtis bit. because What's Tony Curtis? Tony Curtis okay. is, is Tex, uh, Shell Oil, Texas. Okay. Really shines in this, with the premise being, rather than pursue her, and she even goes, oh, someone might take advantage of a young woman in this situation. He goes, I would if I had any inclination whatsoever, but women don't do anything for me. And he comes up with this tragic backstory about this woman he was in love with, and she wore glasses too, which I thought was a great bit of writing. <laughs> because he, what does he know about her? Glasses. She wants to, And the story about how they both took off their glasses to kiss him and his little girlfriend at the Grand Canyon, and he took a step forward. And she took a step forward and then, like, you know, she basically... She had to be brought up by a mule. Brought back up by a mule. And so since then, he's never been able to feel sexual connection with a woman. And what this does, it tricks Sugar into trying to sort of, like, win him over sexually. This is her big sort of whatever. And, he, she, and she kisses him and he even holds firm and goes, sorry, it does nothing <laughs> for me. He goes, makes me go cold. Makes me go cold. <laughs> if the best psychiatrist someone ever can do it, what makes? I'm sorry, but what makes you think you would have a shot? And she said, "Well, let me try." And he goes, "Well, I did feel some tingle in my toes." <laughs> and then, of course, she keeps whatever. And then he goes, "Who taught you how to kiss?" And she went, "She once did it to raise money for the milk fund." <laughs> yeah. So this becomes the count of his tally: how much money he owes the milk fund by the end of a night. Yeah. But while this is all going on, we're cross-cutting with the dance scene between Osgood and Daphne, played by Jack Lemon, and Daphne is getting more and more and more into it as the night goes on. I really enjoyed that. At one point, Osgood goes, you're leading again. Yes. <laughs> and why does he do that? Because he's craving security, and this man with lots of money can provide yes. security. For someone who had a college, not college, but a roommate for whom they couldn't know if they could make rent, this is the exact opposite of that. Yep. Do we think that Sugar and Shell Oil Jr. sleep together? No. I mean, he racks up like 800,000 or something. And then determines he's going to make it a million, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Possibly, but... I got the impression not, but... They were there an awful long time to not have because it's at least like four hours, isn't it? Oh, like it's, the, show the, sun, at... the sun is coming up when they get back. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's a different time, a different era. Like you wouldn't, mm. sh- it's all inferential. Yeah. It's inferential. I think they do. I think they do, but that's just me. Because she makes it quite clear, I think, that she does. She doesn't never says it, but I think it's quite clear. She sleeps with these tenor sax players that she's meeting. Yeah. But not necessarily on the first date. I don't know. Uh, maybe I you never know. I just didn't get the vibe that they had done. But anyway, the 
the bit that I did didn't quite understand was that she takes his glasses off while she's kissing him because they've steamed up. And it's like surely then you would recognise him as Josephine. Like he really doesn't look any different. It's dark. She's winning. They've turned the lights off at this point. Mm, they have. Okay. <laughs> Which, when this film, probably means all the lights are on and they've just yeah, done it in post. Look any I don't know. To me, but you're right, they did find the light. Well, she said she was going to find the lights. No, she, she does turn it radio. off. She, she turns off the light, then it's the radio. Okay. So, um, then they get the boat and they hit the boat backwards, which I love they had that continuity. The boat gets returned back to shore backwards. Did, which... you, also see, did you also see the way she's draped across the boat? Oh, yes, absolutely. Her chest couldn't be any more, like, pushed up and out. I know, right? Oh, that was ridiculous. <laughs> I'd like to think it's a choice by the character to try and impress Shell Oil Jr., but it could just as easily have been the director going, all right, I want you to sit this way, Marilyn, and make sure they're facing the camera. <laughs> Jeez. I did notice that, absolutely. Um, and then we come back... And as they're taking, as the boat comes back, Osgood comes down. And some people went, well, I was doing some research. Well, Osgood should have realized the boat wasn't hitched up with a rope when he got into it. I mean, I'm pretty clear Osgood's drunk when he's coming back to the boat, right? He's very, he, like, stumbled yeah, into like, that it's, boat. It's quite yeah. clearly he's hammered or else he would have noticed the guy coming from his boat. Also, Osgood should have yeah. realized he was falling for a man, but, you know, he doesn't. <laughs> so clearly not very observant. And so they get back to the hotel room. And um, Tony Curtis's character um, decides to tell Jack Lemmon's character about the great night he's had. They spent all night together. And, uh, but he seems, you seem really happy. And this is where we find out that Daphne, uh, also known as Gerald Jack Lemmon, has accepted an offer of marriage from Osgood. And he's going, you know, there's a problem with that, right? He's like, yes, I know. We have to win over his mother, but it's okay. I don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they go, you know, he goes, and then he says he's getting married. He says, who's the lucky girl? And Jack Lemmon goes, I am. <laughs> like, don't you think? They go, oh, I'll tell him at some point. But, but at that point, you know, we'll have been married and he'll have to give me alimony payments for the rest of my life. So he's got his security plan sort of planned yeah, out. I'm not sure that's how annulment works. But At which point we flip the joke and uh, Tony Curtis has to tell Daphne, remember, you're a boy. You're a boy. You're a boy. You're a boy. He's like, oh, I am a boy. <laughs> And you get a really good callback there because when he's on the train earlier, he goes, I'm a girl, I'm a girl, oh God, I wish I were dead. Yes. And then here he I'm goes, a I'm a boy, I'm a boy, oh God, I wish I, I, wish I were dead. dead. At this point we hear, and they go, who is it? And you hear, it's me, Sugar. This took over 40 takes to get correct. Marilyn Monroe could not get the words, it's me, Sugar, in the right order. She would say, who is it? And she would go, Sugar, it's me. <laughs> or, it's Sugar, me. <laughs> Now, at this point, back to Liam's point, Marilyn Monroe had a serious prescription pill situation. And there was also the idea that um, she may have been purposely sabotaging uh, lines in any scene that didn't look like she was getting her best take. Rumor had it her acting coach was signaling her that she wasn't being shown by the camera in the best light in that moment, and she would sabotage the scene. But it got so bad, they wrote it on a blackboard, put it just off camera, and basically said, read this. And she finally, after 40-something takes, she gets in. And there's a story that the director, uh, Billy Wilder, I don't think it was in this scene, I think it was another one, but the story can fit here, takes her aside and goes, I just want you to know that, you know, you're not upsetting anybody. And she went, why would I be upsetting somebody? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, no awareness whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, at which point the bellhop also enters. He's let himself in. 
creepy. Obviously very surprised to find a bunch of people awake. And like more than just the one person he was expecting. Like, yeah. like in the sequel, like it's like some like him dead. You know what I mean? Like he's like some sort of serial killer probably. <laughs> Isn't he carrying a big bottle of something as well? Pardon me? Isn't he carrying a big bottle of something? Like champagne or Maybe, something? Maybe, yeah, yeah. He does say earlier on that he's he's got some kind of alcohol and that's how he's like bribing her to try and spend time with her or something. And this is kind of where Act 3 starts because the mob shows up and they're in for some Ita- lovers of Italian opera. It's just a cover. There's a big mob meeting happening. And I can't help but bring this up. I don't want to bring up super specific things too much. But they pass this one guy and this one guy's flipping a coin. But he's not flipping a coin. <laughs> he's like taking his fist and just like like l- like throwing uh, the coin in the air. Uh, it's not spinning though. He's and just it like, goes, like towards him each time as well. Like he's scared to just like, throw it up. You couldn't find someone who could flip a coin for this scene? Or this, teach him how to flip a coin? This scene oh, really it was horrendous. spectacularly bad as well because they, they do the pat down as well. And they pat down spats and they just do his torso. And then the next guy, they go all the way down his legs and find a gun. And it's like, and do you not think one. perhaps you should be a bit more thorough with yeah. everybody if you're expecting them to be carrying weapons? And at this I, point, also like, I also like the policeman sitting there reading the police. He's just there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's only there for now, because hang on a second. So then they, the, the, the mobsters sort of recognize Daphne and Josephine. And say, don't they we know you them, from yeah. Chicago? And they go, whoa, we wouldn't be caught dead in Chicago. Which is like, okay, great. <laughs> a little note here. Tony Curtis's falsetto was so unconvincing, they actually had some of his lines half dubbed. <laughs> so it was half his voice, half someone else's voice. Wow. To do that female voice. So if you listen to it, it's a little bit wavery because it has been almost done, not digitally, because it wouldn't be digital, it'd be analog, but it's like a double layered thing. That's interesting, actually, because I did notice one scene where it wasn't synced up quite right. Yeah. So they decide they're going to leave. Now, here's the thing. At this point, their cover is not blown. I want to say this again. Their cover is not blown. So you can literally take your stuff and walk out the front door. You don't have to come climbing outside of a window and draw attention to yourself. I, the one thing that really killed me here was I needed some reason why they were going out the window. It's yeah. like, oh, they might see us. Like, like they've but, already seen you. Like, I know Tony Curtis has done this like fifteen times in this film already. Like, gone out the window, <laughs> but he's carrying an instrument. Like, just go out the front with your instrument. Yeah. no one notices. Also, how bad are these guys at packing suitcases? Bad. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's spectacular. Because they're going to leave, and they're going to make. So before they do, Tony Curtis decides he's got to phone Sugar, and he's got to let her down easy. And so apparently the version of that is, I have to go to Venezuela and marry someone else? Yeah. He calls it high finance and then says, what can I say? That's the way the oil gushes. <laughs> but then they re- reappropriate some more flowers and a bracelet that Osgood has given to Daphne. They slide over and that becomes her present now. So Sugar gets off. They have the phone call. He breaks up with her. They hang up. Sure enough, Sugar comes in the room two seconds later. And her job is to come in the room, go to the dresser, and say, where's the bourbon? That is her job. Or where's that bourbon? Sorry. Well, at first she came in and was going to the wrong piece of furniture. (laughs) Then she was getting the line wrong and say, where's the whiskey? Not the thing. Where's the drink? Not the thing. It's where's that bourbon? So they go, here it is, okay? Open it up. And they went, it's in this drawer here. And they even wrote the line and put it on a piece of paper and put it at the bottom of the drawer. The problem was then she wouldn't open the right drawer. <laughs> so he's put it in every drawer. So they put it in every drawer. 
Now, it takes over 50 takes, 59 takes. However, when she finally delivers the line, her back is to the camera, and there are several members of the crew and cast who believe that line was ultimately dubbed in after the fact, and she never did get it right that day. Wow. Just a thought. Um, And so then we have a chase scene, and this is when it gets a little, I mean, I know it's a different time, and I know this is what humor is at at this point. I do. But I'm sitting there going, where's the cop who was reading the paper a minute ago? He was just chilling. Yeah. He wasn't going anywhere. Shouldn't he be no. seeing this? Also, yeah. there's about 10 minutes left of this film at this point, and I'm going, nothing has been wrapped up yet. Well, what is going on? So they get caught, They end up running, hiding underneath the tables at a banquet, where essentially there's a mob hit. They take down, is it Spats? Yeah. They take down yeah. Spats. They shoot him in the middle of a hotel where they're all registered guests, where there's a cop outside. And so yeah. everybody gets caught. Um, Surprise. Yeah. And for some reason, the band is playing at this point. And sure, not and sh- questioning where two of their members are. No, not questioning. And, and you can still hear a bass. <laughs> and also, like, Josephine even goes onto the stage and none of them even kind of take a sideways glance like, at her. Where are like, you? Where have you been? Where's Instead, your friend? Instead, she goes up there, makes out a little bit with Daphne. Not Daphne. Ugh, makes out a little bit with Sugar. And she goes, Tex or Shell or whatever his name was. She says Josephine. Oh, Josephine, but finally realizes who's who. Uh... And the song's all about I'm done with love. And I've got, has Sugar written this song in like the 20 minutes since the breakup? Or is this just a really convenient song for this time in the film? And again, dress number two. Yeah. Not as not not as risque as dress one, but not that far off. No. Um, and then we get, they every, so the two, our two women rush to the shore because they're going to go elope with uh, Osgood. Osgood and Daphne are going to elope. So they bring along Josephine for the ride and then down comes Marilyn Monroe's stunt double, you know, riding a bike or something like that, making sure she catches up. That's also sped up. That's also sped up. <laughs> but gets there and says, wait for me, wait for sugar. She even uses her full name. Well, full name, her first name. Speaks in the third person. They get on the boat, and as they speed away, um, Joe's trying to go, no, 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 you don't want to be with me. You, I'm never a sax player. And she goes, I told you I wasn't very bright. <laughs> I'm like, all right. And then, George's face. And then we cut <laughs> to, and all of a sudden, there's no one in the back seat anymore. The, the boat just has two That's people. Gone. There's no, yeah. they've disappeared. Oh, I didn't notice that. They're, they're gone. <laughs> and he goes, weird. at this point, he's like, I got to come. Daphne, okay, Jack Lemon's character, Jerry's going, I got to come clean with you. We can't get married. And he goes, well, well why not? Well, because uh, I'm not a natural blonde. He's like, well, I don't mind. Well, I smoke. I smoke all the time. He's like, I don't care. I can't have children. <laughs> Uh, you know, we'll adopt some. We'll adopt we'll some. I've been living the last three years with a saxophone player. I forgive you. And then he takes off the wig and goes, I'm a man. And without missing a beat, he just stares straight ahead, deadpan, and goes, well, nobody's perfect. And that then, might be my favorite bit of the entire film. And that's the film. The end. It went the, it went the end. And I went, what? What? Because nothing's been resolved. Like yeah. now, now the national mob are after them. Like if things were bad when it was the Chicago <laughs> mob. Now it's the national yeah. mob. Granted, like some of them are getting arrested because movies got to finish rather than movies got a movie. But 
they're away from shore and that's all it takes and it's the end uh, interesting thing about that line is that the director who was one half of the screenwriting team did not like the line it was his partner who wrote it and he went oh, i'm not feeling it and he went just leave it in there we're not married to it we can want something better and they went okay and yeah, they never did <laughs> and they never did find anything better and it was explained later by the widow of a screenwriter because his wife didn't like it either and she was telling the story and she goes, I don't like it. He goes, no, no, you're not getting it. Because we all know the last line of the movie, we think, is going to be, I'm a man. And so we're all waiting for the big reaction. All film long, they've been teasing. What happens if he finds out you're a man? And so what yeah. you do, the only thing left to do to surprise them is, hack, is have him no-sell it and act like it isn't a big deal. And it's like ranked number 64 on the greatest like film lines of all time. It is clever. And that, my favorite bit of the entire film and that is some like it hot i i I what do people think i thought the script i really like the script i thought it was a cleverly written movie i think the dialogue's excellent i think the pacing is terrible absolutely atrocious you get a first like 10 minutes where something's going on and it's interesting you go oh okay and we get what's his face killed the guy with the toothpick charlie yeah, Toothpick Charlie gets killed. And then we start this journey that takes an hour and a half of a two hour long film. Like, and nothing happens really. Some people, like two dudes, dress up as girls and go about their business for a little while. And then with half an hour left, the action picks back up again. And then it's over with no one having changed, with no one having learned anything. It's just a waste it, of time. It's a comedy. Do you have to learn something? No, but I wasn't funny either. Maybe not in 2020. Joe has learned something because he's always kind of used girls before, but this time he actually falls for her. And he tells her, really? He he does say, You don't want to be with me. He says, You don't want to be with me. I'm not good enough. Whereas before, he would quite, quite happily use them. He even uses sugar at the start. He's like, I'm just going to use her. It's fine. And at this point, he's like, He does look out for her better interests. So I think there's something there. He's already got what he wants, though, hasn't he? And then he's going, oh, I can have it again. Well, all right, then, all right, if, you, if you mean it. Like, it's just not very good. An interesting story is that when this was all finished, it finished two months late, half a million, which at that point, I mean, that's like $4 million today, which I know it doesn't sound like that much, but it's still a lot of money over yeah. budget. <laughs> and as a result, Marilyn Monroe is not invited to the rap party. What's the rap party? It's the party you do when it's a rap. It's like the post-show oh, party. Yeah. I thought you said rat. No, rap party. She's not invited. And when he was asked later on about, um, when the director was asked, would you ever work with Marilyn Monroe again? He said, my psychiatrist and my wife have both told me I'm too old to deal with that kind of stress in my life again. <laughs> Marilyn phones up the house, gets the wife of, uh, of Billy Wilder and says, can you please take a message for me? And she goes, certainly. Tell your husband to go f- himself (laughs) (laughs) and then two years later would claim all was forgiven and she wanted to be cast in his next movie which she was not cast in he had learned his his lesson and that is some like it hot so what's going to happen is i'm going to go ahead we're going to pick back up the phone with our friends at the little bitch podcast and then we'll come back with our sort of closing thoughts sound good yep all right so we'll talk to you guys in a little bit Okay, and we've got the boys from Little Bitch Podcast back on the line. We've just sort of done our deep dive of Some Like It Hot, and we're very curious kind of 
what some of your thoughts are about the film specifically. Uh, before we started, Dan, you were talking about Marilyn Monroe. This is one of her her best films. I think a conversation that we had was kind of about uh, the appeal of Marilyn Monroe and why is she this cultural icon? Is she that good of an actress, for instance, might might be a question. Because she has a charisma. We're, we're definitely all in agreement yeah. about that. Is she a, a talented actress? I don't know. What's what's your take on it there, Dan? So, so for me, uh, as somebody that's a fan of like classic cinema and um, uh, like nineteen thirties, forties, fifties, sixties movies, like, I, I love a lot of them. And so, obviously, that's Marilyn Monroe's era. And um, so, I've watched a lot of her movies, and I've watched lots of documentaries and stuff, and read books and whatnot. And a lot of people sort of said, like, she played this dumb blonde character and she was sort of typecast in that role. Um, and that just wasn't Marilyn Monroe as a person. She was, like, quite intelligent. She had um, quite a high IQ. And she read loads and loads of, like, complex books that most people would avoid. So um, her as a person herself was apparently very intelligent. So some could argue that she was the best actress yeah. that's ever lived. Because she played dumb so well. <laughs> like, you really believe that she's this ditzy, dumb blonde that's just after money and after love. And she, she's incredible. And she, she never got the recognition at the time that she deserved. Because like, I think, it, especially in Some Like It Art, everybody was nominated for so many different types of awards in she won like a Golden Globe, I think, but I think that's the most major award she's ever won. Um, she was never taken seriously as an actress, even then. Uh, I, I, I personally think she's brilliant. Now, Marshall, I take that you're a little bit less of a diehard as opposed to Dan. On this. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be accurate. What is your take on Marilyn Monroe <laughs> as a. I mean, because without question, I think when she's on the screen and when she finally does appear, it's quite a while into the film before she yeah, actually yeah, it's appears. a long time. Um, but the the film changes with, with 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 her. Anytime she's on the screen, there's a different kind of presence, kind of. And so the yeah. charisma you get is that is is that acting or is that just an? Uh, can you perform that? I don't know. What's what's your what's your take on it, Marshall? Where does Marilyn Monroe fit? Uh, I mean, I think certainly watching it in today's well, I think because she is now considered such an icon, I think that is part of why your eyes drawn to her and you really take a lot of notice of what she's doing in these films because I feel like she's one of the names that's carried through time and history and whatever and has now become this superstar kind of icon of that era. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of actual acting talent, certainly compared to some of the other stars in the film, I, again, she, she played her role really well, but I don't know enough about her other roles that she's done in other films to kind of back it up with any solid argument. But yeah, I I, I didn't find her the most engaging actor in the whole film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. On that note, then, outside of Marilyn, who I think has an appeal all her own, um, any other character actors characters that sort of jumped out at you guys during the during the uh, the film? I mean, it's very much a, a, a two piece kind of buddy sort of thing, but did one stand out more than the other? I think for me, um, is it Jerry? The character of Jerry? Yeah, uh, uh, Daphne, Jerry. Yeah. yeah, who then becomes Daphne. He he stood out the most for me. Um, I can't remember his full name. Uh, Jack, Jack, Jack Lemon. Lemon. 
Yeah. Yeah. Don't cry he, re- he really stood out for me. And upon like reading some of the stuff afterwards, I kind of understand he got quite well recognised for his role in the film. Um, and I, I just think the dynamic between him and lots of the different characters, like he has yeah. so many good interactions with um, the kind of millionaire who tries to woo him and then with Marilyn as well in the in the bunk bed on the bus and then also with um the the other musician, the uh the saxophonist. Uh yeah, I, I just thought he was able to he, he really stood out in all those different situations. Like the comedy in the film reminded me of the kind of Laurel and Hardy film stuff, which I used to watch a lot. Uh and it yeah, just really kind of lighthearted, really funny, really quick kind of feel mood. And, and awkward, awkward situations as well. And yeah, it really made me laugh out loud. So he's my standout. <laughs> How about you, Dan? What's what's your take on Joe? So, so for me, like um, uh, t- take away like Marilyn Monroe from the movie. My my standout performance isn't even uh, Tony Curtis or Jack Lemmon. It's um, Joey Brown. Um, uh, so he, he plays the love interest for Daphne. Oh, so, Osgood. Osgood, yes. Yeah, yeah, Osgood. He's um, great. So, he really is. Uh, he, he's like the most comedic uh, part in that, in my opinion, anyway. Um, uh, just It's just such a funny funny role, and he gets the statement piece at the end of the movie. Yes, he gets the final punchline. He, he gets the final punchline of, not everybody's perfect. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's, it, it's an epic um, film line, and I think that's one that has been voted one of the best film lines like ever. So for me, it's it's um, he's an epic epic character. Outstanding. Uh, is there a, a if I knew we usually we'd call this our our little grumble, but I think we've we've uh, you boys in play. It's only fair that we call it. Do you guys have a little bitch about this film at all? <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose for me, it'd be like the sort of mythical status that the movie's got. I don't know how deep your dive went into um, the movie, but sort of stories afterwards um, about the movie um, came to light. So, like, Tony Curtis like, likened kissing Marilyn Monroe as, like, kissing Hitler, and um, then there's the, the stuff of uh, Marilyn Monroe purposefully flubbing lines, and um, uh, it, like, took something like 42... Yeah takes to just say it's me sugar (laughs) 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 i I suppose my my bitch would be around the mythology of it like it's become it's become an entity of itself and i would probably say don't believe as much as the hype i guess uh, i I know she definitely did the 42 takes because there's a lot of people that said that But uh, yeah, I watched the special features. I really did my homework. Excellent. (laughs) I watched the movie, I watched all the special features, and Tony Curtis said that um, comparing it to Hitler was really, really blown out of proportion um, (laughs) because it it was asked by um, a newspaper person at the time, and he was like, well, what do you you want me to say? It's like kissing Hitler. Is that what you want to hear? And that's literally what they ran with in (laughs) a massive thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Marshall, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, I, probably my little bitch is, and it's just a personal thing for me, is the musical side of things. Like, I'm not a fan of musical movies in okay. general. I, I think there's a few exceptions. Um, 
But yeah, as a general rule, I'm not a fan of the musical movie. And I think when it's on a stage and you go and see a musical um, in like on Broadway or in the West End or anything like that, it's more of a spectacle and it's an atmosphere and stuff. I feel like it loses a lot being on a film and the random outbreaks of song in movies in general don't really do a lot for me. So I think I think it, it can sometimes take away from other aspects of the film. But I mean, I, I think the most famous song from the film is I Want to Be Loved by You, isn't yeah. it? And I think that one kind of surrounds a comedic interaction between um, the, the double act and then Osgood. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, it's, it's whether it's necessary for me. Yeah, and they try to have their cake and eat it too, I think, by having the characters be musicians. It's that old trope. So if we have them be yeah, musicians... Yeah. Then we can have the musical, but it still feels organic because, well, of course they're going to play music. They're musicians. Yeah. But did we need yeah. this perfect like rehearsal thing in the train when like the flask falls out, or is that just we have Maryland? It's time for a song here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that goes back as well to what we were saying about Marilyn as a as a kind of entity. Like it's like, oh, let's show off every single thing that she can do, um, and that probably took away from some of her acting credentials as well. I, th- I think it as well, it just like served as a way to really have Marilyn Monroe ooze sex. Like, yeah. through th- the rest of the movie, she wasn't really oozing sex other than when she was doing the musical numbers, like, because she had the most risque outfits on. Yes. And it, it, it was just like pure sex on a plate. Like, everything <laughs> she was just doing was just, it just oozed sexiness. And like, that's where you could see Marilyn Monroe as. Like the iconic like film goddess that she's known to be today well, I, is through the musical bits. The only thing I would add to that is the scene when she's with um, Tony Curtis on the boat, and he's doing the whole "Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I just don't have sexual interest." And so she, it's genius that she has to like throw herself repeatedly at him. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a nice little bit of it, okay. This is just a um, sort of fantasy escapism for anybody going. Oh, I wish I was Tony Curtis in this moment. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's not so much a film that could get made today, would it? Like, oh. It's very very much of its time. <laughs> well, well, the first shot you get of Marilyn Monroe, I mean, we, we, we do see her walk by the boys. Boys, I say, in finger quotes at this point. But as they go to the sort of a reaction shot the other way, it's just a close-up on Marilyn Monroe's backside. And I'm like, you could not have that be your like introductory shot today. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I, I, I think the first moment where like um, Daphne knows that she's passing is when the guy, oh, the chaperone, I forget what his name is now off the top of my head. Yeah. But, was, but, but, like, but like he pats her on the backside as she's getting into the train, and I'm like, oh, like, oh you've, you've made it. I'm like, oh, this is so problematic, this film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I do think you have to go and go, it, it's, it, it's the 50s, and uh, there's a different, um, it's a different set of standards, and so it's fun to kind of go back and yeah, watch yeah. it with modern eyes, but realizing it, it, it was different then. It, it was very much the role that Marilyn Monroe was sort of put into. Mm. Like, th- there was another movie that she was in that was called Niagara, and um, at that at the time had the longest walk in a movie. And the reason why they did that was because they were looking at Marilyn Monroe's backside. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Marilyn Monroe, like, like I said, like oh. You- it wasn't to have the longest walk. It was to look at my ass. <laughs> 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 she, she's, 
does very much aware because it's like a good like two minutes of film of her walking all the way down the street just for the wiggle. And I guess that's the question: Is she playing us or them, or, or were they playing her, or did it get into sort of? I think in the end, it turned into a bit of a vicious cycle where they were both playing each other. It, it, was, it was a bit of both, yeah. definitely. I would, I would say. Because she she was like famously very underpaid, um, so that that's the element of if she was the smart person that they say that she was, really, why was she still getting paid um, an extra's wage? Because there, there was um, in one of her earlier movies, um, there was a dog in there, and the dog got paid more than Marilyn Monroe, and she was like the second build star. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> chalk one up to uh equality in hollywood in the golden age and today yeah. and today you hear stories <laughs> yeah. still i mean you, you don't hear made less than the dog but you, you still hear about these drastic <laughs> inequities so yeah yeah oh geez so it's time for rating time we, we we tend to rate it out of 10 here um liam and i hold ourselves to a, to a strict half point uh, schedule our guests though are always free to kind of go wherever they want to with it so uh wherever your heart's desire where does it rate you on a on a scale of around 10 but feel free to get as creative as you would so choose uh marshall we've been heard from you from a bit let's start with you i i feel like it was solid eight out of ten i think as a as a film of this area and kind of what the comedy and it i don't know it all gelled really well throughout the whole film i think and yeah, it, there's just like my favorite scene was the the scene on the bus where they like he, um, Daphne and Marilyn are laid together, and then all the other girls out of the band are just climbing in. He's like, "No, get out, get out, get out!" <laughs> uh, and they're all and they're all just bringing different kinds of alcohol and stuff like that. It just I was just absolutely howling, and mm. I, I think just the moments like that really good. It's a really feel good kind of it is light hard comedy. Nothing too serious about it, and yeah. Uh, yeah, eight out of ten for me. Uh, for me, I, I, I mean, I'm a bit biased, but I'm, I'm going to give it a solid ten out of ten. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> because uh, you've got to sort of appreciate the historical aspects of the movie, because like, especially with modern eyes, because it was like the first movie to show like um, cross-dressing, like drag, and all that. Like, and then there's like. Um, uh, Marilyn Monroe, I think she just played Marilyn Monroe so well because um, uh, you, you can also look at it in, in quite a sad way because that character she was playing was very much Marilyn Monroe at the time, like addicted to the uh, the alcohol and um, uh, the fame side of things and the character she played was very much messed up like Marilyn Monroe was very much messed up so um I think it, it's a solid mover, and it it has elements that don't stand up to the, to today's standard of movie. But for me, I, I just love it. It's one of my favorites. Outstanding. Well, gentlemen, this has been this has been thrilling. Why don't you take a couple seconds here <laughs> and uh, tell us all about the next episode or or some stuff about where people can find you? Okay, so we funnily enough we've we've just recorded a new episode that's going to be going out on Thursday. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. But if you want to keep up to date with us, you can find us on all social media. Just search Little Bitch Podcast. And on Twitter, we are Little Bitch Pod. And Instagram, Little Bitch Podcast. Um, if, if you've not got time to do all that, just Google us. We'll come up now. <laughs> we're, we're, we're there. 
we're, we're like at least third result. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's something that we really want to like keep going with. We we we're loving the interaction with other podcasts and um we want to do collabs and like features and we love doing the shout outs and we love hearing shout outs like when you did the shout out um on your other episode but like, i literally screen recorded it and sent it Marshall. So i was like oh wait we got the shout out <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to hear yeah, I don't know. I guess yeah, the, it's, it's, fun. it somehow legitimizes you. You go, hey, yeah. <laughs> someone yeah, else, I, I, someone else who's someone else who's trying to do what we're trying to do recognizes that. Hey, yeah. I made it, Mama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're all in this crazy podcast boat together, so we've got to help each other out. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Well, gentlemen, thank you. Yeah. It's been an absolute delight. So, nice, no, brilliant. Us. Excellent. So Google them on Little Bitch Podcast on Google or the socials or whatever you can do or wherever, wherever all reputable podcasts are now. I <laughs> Send up a smoke signal. We'll find you. <laughs> all the way from Sheffield, the boys from Little Bitch Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. So just general overall feelings. We can just sort of throw some things out there. Georgia, I get the feeling that you are not a fan of the film. It, it's not terrible. Um, like if I'm thinking about it as a complete product of its time, I'm going right. Okay, yeah. There's a, it's a half decent decent story if you can call it that. Like it's there's nothing offensive about it particularly. Like you kind of go, yeah, it's all right, but it's not one I'd want to watch again. It's not something I'd rush to tell anyone about. If anything, this has put a downer on Marilyn Monroe and on classic films for me because I've gone. I didn't enjoy this. Why would I watch another one? See, I didn't. I didn't hold well, they, Marilyn Monroe in a very high regard. I saw her as nothing but a sex symbol, and so to see her sing a little bit and to own a stage, I appreciated that. I thought that was really good. What this film has done is made me want to know a bit more about Marilyn Monroe, um, kind of find out if it was all an act or what, kind of whatever. Like, what was she? actually like and what was she going through and that kind of thing because that sounds quite interesting well when i was but, talking to dan from a little bitch podcast he mentioned hmm. that uh marilyn was uh, highly intelligent and was like a great habit yeah, reader yeah. and therefore I she, heard that. Yeah. she might have been like we talked about is this an act or yeah. who's playing who and at this point i think he and i determined it's kind of a vicious cycle they're all they're everyone's yeah. taking advantage of each other so she was intelligent and is this is she still or or have the pills and the fame and, and the alcohol and has everything gone too much? And she's also, I didn't mention this, she's pregnant during this film as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. So owning that dress for concern, she had to be sewed into it. But yeah, absolutely. No, I think if if it was an act at the beginning and she's playing people into thinking she's this dumb blonde sex symbol and nothing else, then that's brilliant. Like, that's incredibly clever. But it's obviously gotten to her at this point, I think, and is no longer entirely that. And she has kind of been pushed around and this kind of thing and is probably kidding herself into thinking that she hasn't been. Um, but it just, yeah, no, I'd like to know more about Maureen and Monroe. I'm not that interested in watching any more films by these people. I didn't find it funny. Just keep in mind when she flubs the, the lines like 50 times, poor Tony Curtis and um, Jack. Yeah. Jack Lemon 
are standing up in these high heels. It's just that when their takes were done, they'd have to like put their feet in like like ice water and stuff like that. And <laughs> yeah. she's making them like stand for hours. The struggle is real. And showing up hours late to set and the complete disregard for everybody around you. And not only that, the, the, the people in her life who were supposed to be, yes, helping her, but just the complete disregard for anybody who wasn't Marilyn. Yeah, that's, that's not okay, is it? And so I think... What Dan was trying to get at when I asked him kind of what his little bitch was for the for, for the thing was the fact that I think this sort of conversation, the fact that he kind of wishes we could see the film as the film and not consider all the behind the scenes drama that's come out. He brought up there was a story where Tony Curtis once offhandedly made a joke that kissing Marilyn Monroe was like kissing Hitler. Yeah. Now, what he was saying was at first he said, well, what do you mean? You know. I think the joke that's trying... I watched something about with Tony Curtis on it before we came on. He claims the joke he was trying to make was, well, it's a stupid question. Why are you going to ask me that for? So I'm going to say the most, the most opposite thing I can. Because yeah. what's Kissing Marilyn Monroe like? It's like your birthday on crack and 4th of July all at the same time. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Uh, as opposed to... Um, you know, so he says the most opposite things, like kissing Hitler. Well, it's obviously not like kissing Hitler, and that's his joke. Don't think it's a great that joke. Mustache. Don't think it's a great joke at all, but I understand where he's coming from in that regard. Sarcasm, irony gone wrong. I think, just going back to what you said about what Dan said, I think I did watch this film with no um, knowledge of the background. I didn't really know anything about Marilyn Monroe at all. I didn't know how awful she was to work with or anything. And so I think probably got one of the more neutral points of view on the film on that regard um and it hasn't changed okay like how i felt about the film i still thought it was quite bad even without knowing that she'd taken 50 takes to do that so learning that i'm going really yeah like that's just that's just not okay like there's a point and then there's a line and you cross the line when she's having her breakup phone call her line delivery there is also atrocious and i found out that if you go back she is literally reading that just off camera, there's the script, and she's reading her lines. And I'd like to go back and look at it, because apparently it's painfully obvious. I just remembered it was one of those scenes I went, this is some of the worst line delivery I've ever seen. And really where I'm struggling with Marilyn Monroe, because I'm going to say it again, she wins a Golden Globe for this. It's not okay, is like, it? Like, who is she like, beating? The Hollywood Foreign Press are nuts. People of the time. Oh. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know who they are. Is the bar but... that low for, for, for actresses at that point? I feel like it is. No. It can't be. When was breakfast? At, when was be... breakfast at Tiffany's? If someone wants to look that up, because this is fifty nine. Breakfast at Tiffany's can't be past sixty three. Six. Oh, I say sixty two. Yeah, I, so, I think it's something to, like that. I guess to be fair, I haven't really seen very many films of the era. I just, I just feel like sixty one. I just yeah. feel like there is always like a marked difference between like you look the at, old films. But and you look at some films. of those supporting actresses, the other women in that in that band. The line del- I was never at one point like, the dialogue wasn't great at times, but I'm going so, the delivery's fine. What delivery? I didn't I mean the only person I really found had any lines was Sweet Sue and she was awful. Oh, there was Sweet Sue and there was the is Sweet Sue the one who who's the, the like, leader of the band is Sweet Sue. Who is who is Sugar's roommate? I don't know. I found her entirely. I thought she was all right too. I I thought the rest of the girls were all right, and it wasn't like, oh no, I am so scared. Yes. Also, in '64, 
Mary Poppins comes out. Yeah. Okay. Julie Andrews is a completely different <laughs> league of acting. Okay. Like yeah. you might not like the character, as we've discussed, but that's a completely different league of acting. Yeah. I know it's five years difference, but that's not much. No, no, I agree with you on that. I think we're giving it way too much of a, t- of a balance to go. Well, that's the way all actresses were back then. I, I think. Everything... Yeah, that's a that's a fair point, Georgia. And if anyone wants to find out our views of uh, Mary Poppins, you can check out our sister podcast, Talking the Mickey. At Talking the Mickey on the Instagram and at Talk the Mickey on the Twitter. Whoop whoop. whoop. Also, I'm much more friendly on those usually, just for the record. <laughs> I'm not, so that's kind of a reversal <laughs> of fortunes. Um, so, usual questions: Whose movie is this? Uh, the mob boss. What's his name? Bang. Spats. Spats. You know what's really interesting Spats. is that Marilyn Monroe pitched a different ending where she ends up with Spats and runs away with him. That would be much more interesting. Much more interesting. At least there's a bit of a twist, a bit of, bit of challenge, a bit of a woo Better who saw than, that coming? Oh, yeah, we're all going to be the people we've been this whole film. <laughs> woo I'm so glad I waited two hours on that. I don't think they are. I think, I think the matter changed. But anyway, Liam, whose story is it? Tony Curtis's. Yeah. So, I'd be inclined to say the same thing. Yeah, me too. Okay. I think, obviously, it's kind of, it's like a pairing, isn't it? They are very much a double act. But, yep. yeah, I think he, for me, he shows the most change and it is his kind of character arc, really. Um, is, who's your, who's your favourite character? Marilyn. Marilyn? Okay. I adore the woman. That's I fine. adore her. I've always loved this woman. I've always had a big fascination with this woman. Um, I no matter how much tragedy is in her life, whenever I see photos, whether she's smiling uh, or looking down behind her eyes, you just see pain, and I can relate to that. And this might have gone over budget, and she might have been a disaster to work with, but it made its money back, and then like it made like triple its money back. Uh, she, smart business person, got ten percent of the gross of yeah. the gross, not the net, the gross of everything. Wow. So she wow. she made out like a game. Also, the director for all his pains, he got twenty percent after it made its money back. So he did okay yeah. as well. Like like everybody walked away with some cash. That's what Marilyn was. Marilyn was a I hate to use this term, but in many ways, Marilyn was a commodity. And you put Marilyn Monroe on the front of that poster at the front of your movie. This is going to happen for you. Yeah, but she understood that she really did. She just wanted to be loved by other people. Um, I want to be loved she, by you. She, <laughs> she wanted to, I think she wanted somebody in her life. That's why she picked people like Arthur Miller, um, Joe DiMaggio. President Kennedy. She people to Mario, marry because she thought she could get something from them, like a fatherly figure. So they were always older men, you know, and she liked powerful men. Position of power. Yeah. She loved, you know, she, she wanted that. So she really she wanted herself then. Sorry? She really is playing herself then. Well, this is an interesting question because we write Sugar as a woman who seems to have addiction problems, seems to have men problems, and we make the poor girl basically act out a fictional version of herself in many ways, don't we? Yeah. Holding a mirror up to herself. Like, tell me that's going to be... Like, you say that she doesn't want to come out of her dressing room and doesn't want to show up to set. Do you think maybe part of this is why? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be I, interesting yeah. to see what the reviews of are. She's very troubled. Like on different films as well, yeah. To see whether she was always that much of a nightmare to work with. Well, obviously, we said um, the director Billy, Billy Wilder. Wilder, thank you. They worked together on Seven Year Itch, and he 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 was over the moon when she came back to work on this. Oh. So obviously, she wasn't this way before. 
Yeah, interesting. I mean, you do say that you sort of hate to use the term commodity, but I think she she was an absolute icon and a sex symbol and and all of these things. And like we said, I think she's quite aware that, you know, that's how she looks in that dress. And she's, you know, she's taking the spotlight. She's making the most of it. And she knows she knows what she's got and she knows how to use it. Georgia, your favorite character. Uh, that guy that pops out of the cake shoots Banks. <laughs> Spats. Spats. Banks is funnier. Spats. <laughs> uh, He's called Spats because of his shoes. Yeah, yes. yeah, I think they, they did put that in your face quite yeah. quite a bit. I didn't even know that that's what they were called. Me, me because they made it quite obvious. Yeah. When he they? says buff in um, my spats. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> also like they show it like these first introduction, someone spills stuff on his yeah, he gets, it's the drunk. Well. I want another cup of coffee. I want another cup of coffee. No, he's my favourite character. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the the the, the uh, decaffeinated gentleman in yeah. the uh, in the, in the first <laughs> Ellie, favourite character? Uh, sugar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sugar. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, oh, oh, I'm trying to remember which name I want to go with here. I'm going to go with Jerry slash Daphne. I think Jack Lemmon's great in this. And went from... And interesting... Uh, Tony Curtis was asked, why do you think that your feminine energy is so much more believable than Jack Lemmon's? And he went, I'll tell you exactly why this is. Because I'm scared to my death that I don't know what I'm doing. And so as a result, I think I'm becoming much more inward in my in my performance and almost acting demure. And that's kind of giving it more of a feminine energy. Whereas Jack Lemmon, from the minute he put it on, was like, ah! come across therefore as very masculine in his behaviors and therefore he doesn't pass nearly as well as tony curtis did that's really interesting actually oh, that was a really interesting a point. Lot, there's a lot of like psychological studies about women's confidence in their own abilities compared to men's yeah, and, yeah i guess so, it shows in physicality uh, and so yeah if you look if you look early on when they start dressing as women tony curtis is quite hench he's quite muscly yeah very much so his shoulders are huge his arms are huge in that dress yeah Sorry? His arms are huge in that first dress they wear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, best bit of the film. Best bit of the film. Uh, Georgia, let's start with you because yours will be the funniest. That line at the end. That line at the end. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. That's, that is the only and the funniest joke in the film. Okay. Best, either the best scene, Liam, or the best, uh, the best, My best bit thing? is the boat going backwards. The boat, <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice gag. I really? love that. Um, I really like the I want to be loved by you like just kind of for the performance of it. But in terms of sort of the dialogue-y kind of bits, I quite like the bit when Sugar's explaining to Josephine how she always falls for the saxophone players. Mm. I think that's quite a nice little comic moment. I'm just going to go for the script overall. I thought there were some nice recurring, I'm a girl, I'm a girl, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. Uh, type, type, o. type O blood mm, was brought yeah. back a lot. The glasses joke was brought back a lot. These little things that sort of got pinpointed and sort of would, would, would keep coming back. Liam? I also want to say what I thought about earlier was I see this movie as two different movies because what you see at the beginning is not what you see in the middle and near, to, near towards the end. Um, it's a bit like uh, From Dust Till Dawn. When you're watching the beginning of that, it's not what you expect. I was just listening to a podcast on From Dust Till Dawn this week, man. Yeah, that's a, that's a drastic total shift. Total shift. Yeah. And that's the same with this. You've got the gangsters having a shootout. And then you've got these guys in a girl band and one, and they're trying to hit on the girl. Does anybody think... So that's like two different movies to me. Does anybody else think the film gets worse when the mobsters show back up? 
Oh, yes. and it gets infinitely better. Oh, really? I thought it got so much worse. I was way more into this, these two relationships, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think so. I did really like the kind of mobster scene right at the start. The actual that's opening, fine. No, that's fine. But... It's the thing that forces them in that situation. I can live with that. But yeah, it just it didn't really make any sense to be. They honest, just happened they to just be appear. at the exact yeah. same hotel. Yeah, I didn't like that. I do have that in my notes. Um, honorable mention for my best character, though. I did like the detective. I thought he was great. Yeah, I, I thought he him. was. He the one that gets shot second. Yeah, uh, he was. Oh, I thought I had this down. Oh, I don't. And then I also liked Osgood. As well, the, the yeah. little the little dopey guy who gives the last line. I thought he was great. It's hard uh, not to like him. Man. The question I ask at the start: Which one of those two got the Oscar nomination and won the Gold Globe? My mind and brain tells me it was Tony Curtis, but my heart tells me it was Jack Lemmon. Okay, anybody else want to make a, a guess? Well, I did. I don't. I can't remember which one's which, but I I did think that it would be Joe. I think because I preferred that character, but I think from what we've said, it's probably. Jerry. Okay. Georgia? Um, I know I my opinion here is invalid. I don't know. Okay. It is Jack Lemon. It is Daphne who is nominated for for the Oscar and wins the Golden Globe and really came out of nowhere. This was his star-making performance. And that being said, I really like Tony Curtis in this. I think Tony Curtis is great in this actually. Apart from that awful accent. Yeah. I, I, I've always I think the Curtis. dubbed voice means you can't get an Oscar nomination. Sorry? The voice of Tony Curtis. I don't remember ever seeing... See, I knew Jack Lemmon. That's weird, because for me, Jack Lemmon was the known commodity. Tony Curtis was not. I know Jack Lemmon from my fellow Americans, and then all the films he did with Walter Matthau over the years. Well, what about Sparkus? Never seen Tony- it. Oh, no, really? Oh, yeah. it's a great movie. So there's, 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 there's a few that I got a hit, for sure. The Defiant Ones is another good one. Okay. With Sidney Poirier. Uh, let's go around the table. Uh we usually call this My Little Grumble, but in honor of our guests this week, I think it's safe to call this My Little Bitch. So, Liam, you're a little bitch on the film this week. Um, I didn't like how Jack Lemmon's character pursued Marilyn and then dropped that and Tony Curtis' character took over. Yeah. I didn't like that. Too much of a shift for me. Yeah. Because he's the one who picked up the, you know, he took the blame for the, the whiskey, the bourbon. Um, and you could see it going that way, and then that was just a complete shift. And I didn't like that complete shift. Okay, Georgia. I guess the lack of continuity throughout bits of it frustrated me. Like with the bullet holes and like blood and that kind of stuff, there just wasn't any of it. Like, and I get that it's a, it was made a long time ago, um, but like they do a close up on one of the guys that's supposedly just been shot, and he's he's just laying there. Like, there's no evidence of mm-hmm. death at all and i just kind of went really like squirt some ketchup on him like <laughs> come on put some effort in people and this is actually this film predates the mpaa so there weren't like actual like an independent ratings board who would rate so they this movie. ketchup on him well actually this kind of this film's important because the fact that they kind of went for all this cross-dressing uh was considered like the, like, the catholic church like came out against this film Absolutely. Despite the fact, I mean, it's com- but it's comedic. You know what I mean? This isn't like, oh, I think I want to dress up like a girl because I want to, because I feel this is who I am. If anything, they make it quite clear. They don't want to be dressing up as girls. But even the comedy, they're like, no. And this film kind of is one of the last nails in the coffin of that old system because the old system was self-run. The films more or less um, came up with their own ratings guidelines. And this film yeah. went, forget it. We're not, we're not, we're not doing any of it. And is a huge part of why this was brought 
that that system was brought down and eventually the MPAA gets put in its place. Not to correct some like it hot, far from it, but just the idea that the old system wasn't fit for purpose anymore. Uh, Ellie, you're a little bitch. Um, it almost sounded like I said, Ellie, you are a little bitch. <laughs> for the record, he did not say that. Um, so in this bit where you've got the kind of the meeting and Spats and his men all get killed, Joe and Jerry are hiding under the table and they then decide to make a run for it. And I'm just like screaming at the TV going, why on earth did you not just stay under the table? Because now they've got, like you say, like the whole whole American like mafia mob, yeah. on, mob, mafia on them, whereas previously it was all just the guys that were dead. So they could have totally got away with it and just chilled out in the hotel, like, stayed with Sugar and all of this. And they just get up and run and right in the middle of it. And it's like, you idiots. Like this is the equivalent, uh, Georgia, of the Cantina Band in Star Wars playing the same song again. Like, remember that, <laughs> remember that chase scene? We did, yeah. like, five minutes ago. Let's just do it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did just remember my other little bitch, though. My okay. other little bitch was not about the film, but was about us not bringing up the fact that the dog they bet on is called Grease Lightning, and yes. Liam didn't bring it up. <laughs> Grease Lightning. <laughs> yes, and um, they also bring up Maraschino, uh, the cherries, which is also mentioned in Grease. Is it? Yeah. Oh, and then um, I had another little bitch. Oh. Well, that's all right. Um. <laughs> Just how rubbish Sweet Sue and Beanstalk are as characters. Like, they're just complete wet blankets. Ah, and they don't them. do anything. But and... they're the chaperones. That's what they're there for. You have to have someone to rebel against. Yeah, but every time something goes wrong, she's just like, Beanstalk! And then he comes in and does nothing But either. he's a small, it, oh. ineffectual man. There's kind of a trope in that. Liam? Oh, I just hated them. Can I just have a shout-out to the stunt guys? Because that opening scene with the gangsters... Swerving the car over, oh, smashing and, like, the hanging off the car in that. Oh, off the car. yeah, that real. Yeah, I stand with you there. Uh, that is cool. My little bitch uh, is definitely. I'm, I'm with Liam. I did not like the fact that originally it was Jack Lemon's sort of. Oh, she's great, and then not only does he have sort of start to buy into this fantasy about how he's going to marry Osgood. But, like, he's totally okay with the fact that he just takes himself out of the running. You know, like, I was looking for a proper love triangle, and yeah. we didn't get a proper love triangle. We just got him going for the goofy side story and leaving the main romance to our traditional leading man, Georgia. Can I just point out that your best bit has been the script, and your worst bit has been the script? I, my, my, my... <laughs> the story. Yeah, I'm going I'm to go with that. So we spoke when we did Mary Poppins on the other podcast. Not Mary Poppins. We spoke when we did Star Wars. Is it possible to have a great story and a bad script? I think this is an example of a great okay. script and a bad, not bad, but not nearly as good story. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. I'll, I'll let you have that. It's just no, it's confusing a, my brain that you'd it's definitely that. It's definitely a, yeah. a, a good challenge, actually. I have no problem with that. Uh, we've got really quickly the age game. We'll do the age game. Uh, mm-hmm. I might know one of them, but that's about it. Yeah, so I think probably we've got quite a lot of context already for Marilyn Monroe. So really quickly, let's go Georgia, Liam, me, and we'll just sort of rapid fire through them. So yeah, Marilyn. Marilyn Monroe. Georgia? I don't know how old she was when she died, so I haven't got a clue. Um, That's fine. I think that's why we're starting with you. 33? Liam? Yeah, 33. I'm going to go 31. She's 33, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. (laughs) Um, At the time of release, anyway. Um, Joe? Joe, Tony Curtis, the more serious one, the one who drives the boat backwards. Uh, 
Ian's closest. Uh, Jerry. Jack Lemon. Daphne. Uh, 34. 37. 32. He's 34. Georgia got it. Oh, so they're wow. The same, they're the same age and very close age. Oh, I would have had slightly older and younger. Okay. No. Uh, and what about Osgood? Osgood, the old millionaire. Um, I don't think he's actually that old. Played I'm by Joe go E. King. 57. 56. 62. So this is interesting because in the script it says that all the millionaires on where they are are over 70, doesn't it? But, um, he's 68, actually. Oh, wow. So. so he's quite a lot older than you all thought, but still younger than the script suggests. That part of Osgood was later played by on a stage version by Tony Curtis. <laughs> he came back and he played that part. And before we leave it, uh, 2020, they were supposed to be opening a new uh, Some Like It Hot show on Broadway. Oh, and that cool. might have been interesting to see how that might have um, mm-hmm. done. I think it's the kind of story that actually does very well on stage. The bit yeah. where the audience is in the know and you got lots of quick changes and all that stuff. I think that could be really, really good. So, uh, now it's just Actually, ta- yeah, I think that would be more impressive. It, it might be, yeah. See it live, yeah. And you could do the, the, the nighttime versus daytime with lights as opposed to uh, with <laughs> camera. <and stickers. laughs> uh, time for our ratings. Liam, out of 10, what do you give Some Like It Hot? Seven. Okay. Uh, Georgia. See, I've been really trying really, really hard to put it just as a product of its time. So as a product of its time, I'm going to give it like a good seven and a half. Like I should imagine it's probably quite good when it comes out. Okay. But for me, watching it today, three, didn't interest me. So I don't know which one of those do I, am I supposed to be taking, the three? I don't know. We, we, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think you can sort of come up with a fictitious idea of what product of its time meant. So if you didn't like it, that's fine. You can give it a three. Three then, okay, yeah. Okay, cool. Um. So with that logic then, I mean, I was going to say seven and a half was sort of like a product of its time as well. Um, I would maybe lower that to like a, a six and a half okay. for now. Like I did, I did enjoy the film and I'd happily watch it again, but it's definitely not in the same kind of league as the other films that we've been watching. I'm going to give it an eight. I really liked it. Oh, I, I, I thought it was good. I thought it was charming. That's the word I would use for this. It had charm. And my issues with Marilyn can easily be taken away by the positives that she brings to the role as well. Um, I really enjoyed the camaraderie between the two male characters. I I always felt their friendship was real, which is important. Actually, within moments, I got their friendship was real. And I think that's something with everything else that might have been overlooked at times. But yeah. Did you also notice in the film, um, there's a bit where Tony Curtis grabs hold of Jack Lemmon's hand and he pulls him by the hand? Yes. Holding hands. Yeah. That. Yeah. Interestingly enough, funny. I wonder if there's something in this because when uh, the first time he was supposed to appear on set in drag, by him I mean Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon had to get him from the dressing room and drag him by the hand on out of the dressing room and onto the set. That's so cool. I wonder if there's anything in that. So Maybe. that's some like it hot. We definitely want to give a big thank you to our friends from Little Bitch Pod for coming and hanging out with us a little bit today and uh, sharing their <laughs> thoughts and recommending a film that uh, I think, at the very least, I think uh, can now say we've seen it. George, I think that might be something you can say. I've seen some Marilyn Monroe. I have seen it. Yep. Uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I liked it. Uh, I, I would not be, uh, I'd be very interested in seeing Seven Year Itch at this point. I'd be up for seeing that and seeing what would, what would that have been like. Um, so that just leaves us with what we're doing next week, next film ever. So I'm very excited. 
I'm very excited to, to, to announce this one because just a couple of weeks ago, we had the 20 year anniversary of a film that won best picture at the Oscars. Gladiator. We are doing gladiator next. (laughs) So we are going to go all the way from some like it hot in 1929, Chicago. We're going way back in time. We are going (laughs) to the fall of Rome or the glory days of Rome. Something anyway, with lots of, we're going for Georgia. You want to see blood? We're going to have some blood. I think in <laughs> Gladiator. I get the feeling I will like this more than okay. I like. Than and I this like is the film more. that put Joaquin Phoenix on the back. Joaquin Phoenix is very young in this. So yeah. just original. Oh yeah, I'm really looking forward. Original to thoughts. So you're looking forward to it, Georgia. You're looking forward to it. Yeah, Liam. I've seen it before. I'm assuming you have as well. Well, several times. Love it. I'm. I'm. I've seen it. I might have seen it like twice. I've seen it twice. Um, really looking forward to seeing it again it's been it's been a long time for me since I've seen, it's been a, probably about a decade so i'm looking forward to seeing it definitely again richard harris is amazing in that movie yeah yes he is yeah. yes and, and there's, some, there's some there's some great stories from this film as well oh, so lots movie. that we can get into with our definitive deep dive on that so please join us next time when we talk about gladiator so for best film ever i've been ian And I've been Liam. I've been Ellie. And I've been Georgia. And if we didn't do a good enough job for you in this podcast, we'd just like to remind you that nobody's perfect. We'll see you next time. (laughs)